Horror in the House of Salons, here to save the day. Vamps and zombies, ghosts and werewolves, make them go away. Let's talk about your favorite movies, have some laughs and fun. Then when you're scared of deep, dark shadows, you won't need to run. Morning is coming, there's nothing more to fear. You can come out to play. Brian and Jamie, remember, are always here. And that's all there is to say. Hello, horror fans, and welcome to the first official episode of the second season of ABC's The Bride of the ABC's of Hidden Horror. I am Jamie, and with me, as always, is Brian. It's alive! Alive! (laughs) And, And that's appropriate. So, I hope everyone got a chance to listen to and enjoyed the Z episode that closed out our first season it was a long time coming it was but i hope that everyone liked it and and it was a painful birth (laughs) and if you did and then you're back for this one thank you for continuing to stay with us uh first out of the gate i would like to say yeah thank you to everyone who has listened to the new show and also to our generous patrons that we got right out of the gate which I really that was very pleasantly surprised that was by that. Awesome. That Thank means you. a lot to me. I actually had wanted to uh, give our patrons a shout out, but then I thought, oh, what if people don't want me to? So I guess what we can do is just throw it out there. If you're okay with being shouted out, then true. Some people you know, might just like lurking. Yeah, and and that's fine. Uh, so just I guess let us know if you're okay with that or if you want that or if you don't want that or if you just don't care (laughs) either way but I do want to say a broad thank you to everyone patron or not if you're a listener then you mean the world to us and we are so excited to have you out there on the other end listening to us run our mouths I gotta say I like what we've seen so far of Anchor the new uh, web hosting podcast hosting site uh, they have some analytics, and it's showing us where people are listening from. Now, it could be, I was thinking, maybe they're using, like, a VPN or something to... Oh, that's true. I hadn't considered that, but... Show that yeah. they're in different places. I don't know why they would do that. It's not like we're porn or anything, but hey, who knows. But uh, supposedly, if it's right, we have listeners in France and listeners in Germany, and that's just now. Um, this is still early on. Also, the UK and the UK, and well, of course, Canada, and Canada. And but I'm just, the I'm, US. I'm specifically thinking about the non-English countries. That's awesome to me. I love the fact that there's somebody there who can understand us and do like listening to us. And uh, maybe they like listening to us because they can't understand us. Yeah, they just like the sounds we make. <laughs> it, maybe they use it to like ASMR to help them sleep or something. <laughs> Well, maybe your segments. Not true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also are, this episode, going to be introducing a new segment that will fall between the two larger segments. And it's just going to be a fun little thing where we talk about something, a particular topic, for just a few minutes. It's not going to be crazy long. But That's fun. It, it is fun. It's going to go after the ABC segment and 
prior to the Colossal Collection segment. The additional segment that we're going to be doing was actually inspired by a question that was asked by one of our loyal listeners. That is awesome. I love that. So without further ado, let's just get into the Bride of the ABCs of Hidden Horror, Letter A. The Bride of the ABCs of Hidden Horror. We're starting all over again, and Brian, you have the first pick. What is your movie? Wow, that's pretty prestigious, I guess. It is. You should feel special. I do. Uh, My movie is technically a short film, but a few things about that. I don't mind short films. In fact, I love short films and short stories. In fact, in fact, if you follow my little micro reviews that I do on Facebook or even just talking about movies here, one of the things that I really dislike is when a movie is needlessly long. A film should never start to bore you. And even that is not a guaranteed truism. I'm okay with a long movie sometimes. I mean... The Shining is a long film. It doesn't feel that way to me. But just speaking of, uh, we had just recently seen Mandy again because uh, it was on the Joe Bob Briggs drive-in show. And this was the second watch for me, I think, or maybe a third. I remember when I first watched it, I uh, thought it was a great movie. It was just a little bit too long. And seeing it a second time, I still think that. I mean, that's another two-hour-plus film. You could have trimmed some of that down. Now, I still love the film, but it just goes to show you, length should not be a determining factor on whether or not you embrace a film. I can see it getting in the way, but I don't... I guess there could be a movie that ended too abruptly that I just wanted more and didn't get, but I can't think of any like that. For me... If I'm really into a movie, I always want more. And well, yeah, kind of. Two that come to mind are Hereditary and Midsommar, but it's not even that they could have done anything more. It's just that I wasn't ready to leave yet. Yeah, I get so, that. Um, I also feel that way about The Witch. I just I get so immersed in that world that I don't want to be done with it. You know, a movie like this, I could see someone trying to stretch it out to feature length, and then it would end up hurting the story. Well, no, they did that all the time with Stephen King stories. A lot of Stephen King movies are based off his short stories. And if you read the short story and you watch the film, you can definitely spot the padding. But even if you don't know the story firsthand, it just it feels bloated. And you have unnecessary carry. You just have stuffing. You know, it's like, God damn it, we got to get this up to feature length. And, you know, by hell and high water, we're going to do it. Uh, And how many times have we watched a movie and said, you know, that would be really good as a short. Oh, yeah. You know, or as a segment in an anthology. Yes. I write short stories. I edit anthologies full of short stories. I love the format. You can get in, get out, cover whatever you need to, and not overstay your welcome. Again, I can't tell you how many times... 
I'm watching a movie and I'm liking a movie, but I can just, I'm like, why is this still going on? I mean, okay, here's a bar scene. What does this add to it? Nothing. Oh, here's this guy reminiscing about when he was a child and, you know, he liked to pick dandelions and just, why? Why? What does this add to the film, to the story? Nothing. I'm going to, when we get to the next film, I'll be pointing out some things that I feel like they could have trimmed to make that film better. Yeah. Uh, because just... they fell into the same thing. And I'm just like you as far as the format goes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have written short stories. <laughs> I have made short films. And it's because I am incapable of being overly flowery in in order to just add stuff that doesn't need yeah. to be there i have i've always been like that i just get to the point and then get it over with now i might not always do that when i'm talking but <laughs> when i create things that's how i am and that's why i've always felt that when i do non-fiction writing it seems to be suited to me best because that is a cleaner form. You know, I can't do the Stephen King thing where he goes on and on and on for six pages about describing an ashtray. Yeah. You know, I just, it's not, it's well, not in my DNA. I can't do it. I think each story has a length of its own. And I like some long stories. I like some long Stephen King books. I love The Stand. I love it. But not everything needs to be that length. Well, in the same way about movies, you and know. That's, just, that's like saying not everything needs to be a short film. Sometimes you do have so much you want to say, you can't fit it into a certain, mm -hmm. you know, time limit. And if that's the case and it, and the story warrants it, I am fine with watching a three-hour movie. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. If, as long as I can use the bathroom what, in it. <laughs> if that's what you need. But then sometimes, you know, it's good to know what your story needs. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, something, a film that I think suffered severely from that is The Love Witch. Exactly. That was, I actually had that in mind where I like that movie, but I think the director fell too in love with it. And she was also, I believe, the editor. She was the editor and that was her misstep. Yes. That was a mistake. If you can't bring yourself to cut what you do, yeah, then you should not be editing your own work. And it's hard. I hate when I have to edit my stuff that I write and, you know, it's hard to kill something because I wrote it. There must be a reason that I wrote it. You know, every scene is golden or whatever. I get that. But you need to have some other person come in, look at it objectively and tell you, yeah, you know, we don't need that. It, it adds nothing to the story. It may be a nice, you know, bit of, you know, conversation. It may be some beautiful scenery. I'm talking about films here. You know, it could do 101 things. But it's not necessary, and you're already at an hour and 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Most horror films should be a tight 90 minutes, in, out, done. There are exceptions to that, of well, yeah, course. Not everything needs to be that cut and dry, but that should be your target. Scream 3, for instance, I think, is an, is an over-bloated yeah. slasher. Slashers do not need to be no. two hours long. It's just, it's not necessary. You know, what you need is something quick and fast-paced. What It's just like action films. You know, I don't like overly long action films. You know, uh, I've, I can see that. To me, 90 minutes is good for an action film. And, of course, 
Like I said, there are exceptions to every rule and you just have to know what's good for your story and hope that you have an editor that knows what's good for your yeah. story as well. Well, these guys, they knew what was good for their story. Yes. Okay. On to the movie now that we've had that discussion. I am talking about a short film. It's about 40 minutes. It's called AM1200. It was uh, released in 2008. It was directed and written by a guy who at the time, he mostly did extra features for like DVDs and Blu-rays. He did a bunch of those. And in doing those, he made certain connections with uh, actors and other movie makers. So then he wanted to make his own movie. And that man is David Pryor. Now he made this movie, I love this movie, and he really didn't do anything else until recently. He just wrote and directed The Empty Man. Now that is a movie we have yet to see. Now, and I want to see it. I've heard good things I've about it. I've heard great it. things about it. And I mean, I'm sad you, that we haven't seen it yet, but we've tried. Yeah. We couldn't find it playing anywhere around it. It's not streaming on any of the sites we belong to, and we belong to a lot. I'm hoping we can find some place that has it in the near future, because I've just I've heard nothing but good things. And now that I know it's made by the guy who made this, I really want to check it out. Because this film here, you can definitely tell it's a love letter to two of his idols. It begins very much like a Hitchcock film. There's a man instead of a woman. He does something bad and he tries to flee from it. He tries to run away and escape from it across the desert. So much so there's even a scene where when he's driving his car to try and get away, a cop car comes out of nowhere and starts following him. And it follows him for a little bit and he's getting all nervous and worried. And then luckily somebody speeds by so the cop peels out and goes after the speeder. That's very psycho. Yes, it is. And then the very next scene, you see the guy throwing up on the side of the road because, you know, he's his, his nerves were so shot. And that whole scene, that whole exodus, it just reminds me so much of Psycho. But then it turns on a dime and it gets right into John Carpenter territory. The Void, when that came out, a lot of people, oh, it's just like John Carpenter, just like John Carpenter. And yeah, it kind of was, but no, this is much more like John Carpenter to me. But that's not a bad thing because I love Carpenter. He is my favorite director of all time. And not even just the soundtrack, because the soundtrack is very Carpenter, but even the visuals, it, it his visual language is very much taken right from Carpenter. He loves do those um lens flare? That yeah, lens like flare? the but like bloom. The horizontal lens flare yeah. like from a headlight. Yeah. You know, so much so that when we're watching this I go because <laughs> it reminds me of a carpenter shot but it's not like the jj abrams no you know that thing it's 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 very john carpenter yes but in all the best ways i mean just the his camera placement and how he moves and uses it to me it is total carpenter and again that's a good thing but that's not those aren't his only two inspirations here there's a huge one like the main one Oh, you're talking about Lovecraft? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the reason that people will know that you like, that you put this film forward. Yeah. Uh, I was going to get to that. It is very Lovecraftian or cosmic horror. 
or weird fiction. Uh, those terms can pretty much be used interchangeably. There, of course, are some purists who will stand their ground on a hill and, you know, fight and die on that hill. No, this is this and this is that. But that always reminds me of, like, the metal purists who are like, no, this is, you know, Norwegian death metal. And this is Swedish death metal. It's totally different. And, you know... They like to part and parcel everything down into all these little uh, subgroups. I so much don't. But uh, there is a very heavy Lovecraftian influence in here. And of course, that's my bread and butter. I love it. As for the story, without getting too deep into uh, spoilers, there is a guy who does something bad. He does something really bad. Now... He only does something a little bad intentionally, but it has consequences. And one of those consequences is the death of somebody who he considered a friend. He blatantly broke the law. He willfully committed a crime, but he didn't want to he didn't expect the extenuating circumstances to lead to anyone's death. So I kind of feel bad for him in that regard, but also, yeah, you did this. You did this to somebody who was a friend. And it must be pointed out that because of David Pryor's prior huh, uh, work in uh, the movie industry, making extras on DVDs and such, he, like I said, he used his connections to bring in some people. And one of those people was the always awesome Ray Wise. Yeah, I dig him. Yeah, I mean, I have never seen him in anything I didn't like. He is excellent in here. He's only in here for a little bit, but then again, this is a short film, and it's not about him. But he brings a lot of charm and a lot of character. Another guy that you meet towards the end is John Billingsley. Now, I'm not all that familiar with him. I know he was in one of the Star Treks. I forget which one. I don't know if I've even seen it, but I've always remembered him from that, from seeing pictures, or just, you know, knowing about Star Trek, I guess. He was an alien doctor, I think. Most recently, he was in a Lifetime film that we had just watched. Uh, Jamie made me watch it. Oh my god, like, get off that. The only reason I had us watch that movie was because it was supposedly the story of a story that inspired one of the stories from Session 9. And you hate me. Oh, stop. But anyways, uh, he played a lawyer in that. He was the prosecutor, if anybody... What's the name of the movie again? Just Ask My Children. Okay. Anyways, he's in that. And he's been in a ton of things. So, yeah, uh, David, for his first short film, he managed to pull in some sizable talent for a movie that really, I mean, it has a very small cast. It has a very tight script. Anyways, our main lead... Sam, played by Eric Lang, who's done a lot of TV work, most notably for me anyways, was uh, Lost, but he was in Narcos. He's been in a bunch of stuff. And he's the one who does something bad, he blames it on his friend, and he runs through the desert trying to escape. Um, I think he's trying to get away from the law before he knows it can get traced back to him. Maybe he's just trying to, you know, escape his conscience, I don't know. But during his journey, he picks up on the radio a garbled transmission from channel AM 1200. And it's basically saying, help, we need help. This is a medical emergency. If you're anywhere around us, please come to 
uh, K-A-B-L, and I love that, the name of the station. Yeah, it made me giggle. Come here and please help. He gets lost in his nighttime journey through the desert, and he actually comes across K-A-B-L, and, uh, or K-B-A-L, actually, my bad. And I love his first response. He sees this dark winding trail up the mountainside to the radio station some distance away, and it's all dark and spooky, and he's like, nope, fuck that. <laughs> he just drives off, but of course, fate conspires to get him back into that station. And uh, that's where the weirdness and the horror really begins. I'm not going to say too much about it, because I want you to watch this film. I want you to experience it firsthand. It is very, very good. That's where we meet John Billingsley, and he is excellent in this. Much better than the lawyer in that Lifetime movie. And that's about it. I mean, again, it's a short film. It's, like, based off a short story, and unlike some of the King ones, it's not stretched out to be unnecessarily long just to fit in uh, an arbitrary time limit. So, you can get in, you can get out, you can enjoy it, and I, I hope you do. But... His style is really impressive. The story I liked a lot. I like how it ends. There's an alternate ending here that supposedly the original ending that we have now was always supposed to be the ending. But during filming, somebody suggested, hey, what about this? So they actually filmed it to try it out. And uh, reportedly, the director hated it. Which, I gotta say, good on him because I didn't like it either. So I think it ends well. I like the brief character work we get. And uh, again, it really speaks to the Lovecraftian cosmic horror fan in me. Because it's horrible. It's, you know, mind-blowing. And it just is. No explanation. No lengthy, you know, dissertation on this is this and this is why. And it came from here. And, you know, it just, here's something. It's horrible. You got to deal with it now. And I dug it. What about you? I really like this one, too. I think that while it is a story that the idea isn't really all that new, I've even written a story about bad people having things, you know, happen to them. Well, no, that's very EC. Well, that's what I was going to say is it's very reminiscent of EC Comics in that, hey, you're a bad guy, shit's going to happen to you. And even the actual thing like the the overarching thing that happens to him isn't even necessarily all that new but the way that it's done it's done very well i think it's genuinely creepy and there are (laughs) there's a moment at the end that i just love when you kind of get i guess it's the big reveal Mm. of what's going on I love it. I, I think it's just great. This is a small story because you're mainly with this one guy for the majority of it. And then, you know, he interacts with a couple of people here and there. But, but it's not their story. It's no, it's, one, it's, it's his story. Yes. And in order to do that, you have to have a capable actor who can pull it off. And I think he does an excellent job. Uh, the scene that you mentioned early on when the police officer is coming after him and then he, or not coming after him, but just following him, and then he uh, pulls over after the cop passes and 
and has to puke on the side of the road. Uh, that whole thing was very tense, and I believed it. Mm-hmm. I believed that his his stomach was turning in knots the whole time. When um, he gets to where he's going, and then you know he's exploring this place, it's uh, it kind of reminds me of the last shift. Kind of, yeah. And I like that. Because I like the atmosphere of that. As a matter of fact, I want to say that the first time we watched The Last Shift, I said it reminded me of this. Oh, um, yeah, I think so. And I, I like that when you're exploring. It it's, It has an almost video game-like feel to it. Um, not that it looks like a video game, but that it... He dies and keeps coming it, back. It feels... Yeah. <laughs> he gets respawned. You know, that it feels like a video collecting game. gold coins. Um, he's snatching up fans everywhere he goes. <laughs> you know, the lighting, the the style, you know, the flickering lights and the you don't know what's around every corner and that something could be in that dark room off to the right. It's It reminds me of something out of Resident Evil. Well, let me ask you, am I totally off base? Am I giving it way too much credit? Do you get a Carpenter vibe from this movie? I mean, I don't want to speak for you. I definitely do. What about you? I do. I, I definitely do. I don't know if I see it in the score as much as you do. With all that synth, then? Oh, man, I totally uh, get that's it. Not, but the synth isn't even what I picked up on in the score as much. It's interesting. I, I saw it a different way. And it's way. also a very muted synth. It's not no. like, you know, Stranger Things over the top. Well, no, that's true. Uh, I saw it more in the camera work. Well, I definitely seen the camera work, but, you know, whatever. But I highly recommend this. Is this, can you find this? Can people watch this easily? Well, that's what I was going to say. Um, I know it's out on DVD because I have a copy. Um, I forgot where I got it, but if you just Google AM1200, I'm pretty sure the director, the creator himself might be selling these copies or somebody's doing it for him. It's a good DVD. It's not, It's a professional DVD. It's not a burned copy. A lot of movies like the Warner Brothers archives used to just be burned onto a disc, and you can always tell because the flip side of the disc was blue, the sign of a uh, recorded disc. This is silver. This is fully made. It's just a very independent release. But I'm pretty positive if you just Google AM1200 and want to find a copy, you should be able to. I've seen it on eBay listed. And if that wasn't enough, I also saw it streaming somewhere. So it may take a little detective work. It may take a little bit of elbow grease on your part to find it. And I know that's shocking in this day and age where everything can be punched up on a keyboard and instantly delivered. Some people may find that worrisome. But uh, back in my day, said the old man, you had to hunt down stuff and, you know, really put some effort into finding stuff so it is well worth any extra effort you have to go through to watch it i highly recommend this movie all right so do i sounds good excellent then uh let's get on to your pick for a okay my pick for a is we're going way back for mine and this movie is kind of the very definition of what i liked about this show and that's that uh this is a film that no one talks about ever now i will preface this by saying it's not a great film and there are a lot of things that that i would do differently but i do still think it's worth a conversation if for nothing 
more than the cast and the crew. Uh, the film I'm talking about today is Audrey Rose from 1977. All right, not the guy's best movie <laughs> at all, but it's a Robert Wise film. And he is an incredibly accomplished director. But he is an extremely accomplished director that horror fans should know. I mean, he did things like uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, but also one of the most effective haunted house films ever made, which is The Haunting from 1963. And then he also did Star Trek, the motion picture, which is god-awful slow and boring. Well, I didn't say he was perfect. <laughs> I just want to give some context there. <laughs> But uh, also West Side Story, which, by the way, Steven Spielberg is doing a remake of right now. Yay. But apart from the director, what I find fascinating about this film is the cast. This film stars Marsha Mason as the mom. A lot of people nowadays may not know who she is, but I she's don't. in one of my all-time favorite movies, which is The Goodbye Girl. That's what I mostly know her from. <laughs> Whatever. Um, also uh, stars Anthony Hopkins. Awesome. And, of course, everyone knows who Anthony Hopkins is. But that's another reason I wanted to talk about this movie is because I don't know how many people realize how much genre work he did before uh, he became a household name with Silence of the Lambs. But, you know, there was magic that we've already talked about on this show. Yes. And then now this. It also stars John Beck as the little girl's father. And he just... If you watched TV in the 80s, you saw John Beck. He was on everything from Dallas. He played Mark Grayson on Dallas. Uh, he was in every TV show you can think of from Hunter to... God, I don't even... I, just name an 80s, 80s TV show. He was probably in it. Usually like cop dramas and stuff like that. Sledgehammer. But, but he also... I'll bet he was in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> name a place, any place. <laughs> I guarantee you I've been there. You know what that's from? What's that? Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> uh, no Alaska. I've been there. Oh, he also did a lot of soap opera work. Oh, I could tell that. So, there. <laughs> uh, the little girl is played by, uh, Ivy is played by Susan Swift. She was, well, I know her mainly from Harper Valley PTA. She played the daughter in that movie, and that is dating myself, so there's that. But she was also in uh, Curse of Michael Myers. Who the hell was she in that? Mary. Who's Mary? I don't fucking know. <laughs> you act like I watch that movie a lot. I don't even like that movie. But she was in something called Burned at the Stake, which I have never seen. And it is a movie from 1982 about the Salem Witch Trials. So, baby, you know Yay. what we're going to be watching. Even though I'm already pissed off at it because if it's supposed to take place in Salem and it's called Burned at the they Stake. Didn't they didn't burn the witches. They, they fucked it up already. <laughs> Norman Lloyd played a doctor in this. And he's just one of those people that you see everywhere these are all old people nobody cares about anymore let's get to it <laughs> that is so rude <laughs> well john hillerman is in it oh yeah him yeah you you said is that higgins yeah okay i forgot i saw i recognized higgins i didn't know it was john hillerman <laughs> all right well anyway the idea is this 
Marsha Mason has a daughter named Ivy, and it's approaching her birthday. And she is apparently prone to having really horrible nightmares, more like night terrors, uh, around her birthday. And they notice that there's a strange man who is following them. He hangs out at the school where Ivy goes. He follows them to their apartment building, and this takes place in New York. And they just see him popping up everywhere, and it starts to unnerve them because... Seems like your typical creeper. He's a creeper, yeah. And uh, that creeper is Anthony Hopkins, by the way. So that goes on for a while, and, and she's getting obviously upset because they don't know why this man is following her. Well, then... They are finally approached by this man, and he explains that the reason he's following them is because their daughter is his daughter. The movie begins kind of like The Changeling, where there is a horrible accident that kills this man's wife and daughter, a very young daughter. And he has not dealt with that very well at all. And I guess uh, he's had two separate psychics tell him that his daughter is still alive somewhere. And so he's claiming that Ivy is his daughter, Audrey Rose. Now, this is adapted from a novel, which I have never read, but I'd be curious to read the novel. I'm kind of curious to see how faithful this was and if maybe the novel is better. Because unfortunately, I think this film has some moments that really do work. But there are a lot of moments when it just goes on for so long or, or it takes an angle that isn't necessary what i think is interesting is that there are a couple of things that are very reminiscent of the exorcist and there is a point in the film where she's like my daughter is not possessed and he's like i didn't say your daughter was possessed i'm talking about reincarnation and i think that was on purpose i was going to mention that as well the the shadow of the exorcist looms large it does but what i find interesting is that not only does the exorcist loom large but The exorcism of Emily Rose does as well, and that film hadn't even been made yet. Like, for a long while. Well, you know, it suddenly turns to a court drama. Yeah, it suddenly turns into this courtroom drama, because... And that, I think, is where it falters. Because it... They take what is a really cool, creepy premise, and then he, at one point, runs off with the little girl... And then it turns into a kidnapping case. But they take this kidnapping case and they make this whole spectacle of it where they have her tested in like this operating theater with regressive hypnosis. Oh, he's a good sign. Brian has a real issue with Because <laughs> it that don't subject. fucking work. <laughs> uh, but they talk about how uh, he... He got into studying reincarnation and then went to India. And the film actually goes to India for At least a the state, stock footage does. You know, well, actually, Anthony Hopkins is there in one of those scenes. Was he? Yeah, he was in the river. It feels I like, just saw lots of stock footage. No, it feels like stock, like it's nothing but stock footage. And then there's like one scene where you see Anthony Hopkins. Okay. Actually, but who's to say it was filmed there? It could have been filmed anywhere. Mm. And then surrounded by stock footage where it talks about the belief in reincarnation and why and like the religious aspects of it. But the thing is that stuff might work in a novel. As a matter of fact, I think it would be necessary in a novel, you know, to kind of delve into it a little bit deeper, but you can't always do that successfully in a film without dragging it down. And the unfortunate thing 
is I think that that's what happened here. It kind of comes to a screeching halt every time they want to veer off into that. And if you're making a documentary, then okay. You know, that's a show that, you know, you'd see on the Discovery Channel, you know, like 20 years ago or whatever. But, but when you're talking about making a film, a dramatic film, I don't feel like it works. And I feel like it go it extends the length of the film unnecessarily because it's almost two hours long. Yep. Was I just saying? It was uh, an hour 53, I Something think. Something like that, yeah. And then while these things would be interesting on their own, academically, it's not really necessary in a horror film. Well, that brings a question I wanted to ask you. Do you think this is a horror film? I think he tried to make it a horror film, but I don't think that it is successful. It was marketed as a horror well, film. Well, it definitely was. They were trying to ride off the Exodus coattail. Yeah. I mean, it's painfully yeah. obvious. It's, I mean, it was marketed as a horror film. I think it was intended to be a horror film. And even in the beginning, I think it works. I think you could... There there are the seeds of something there that could be a very successful horror film, it, there's, but they just veer off the track. Yeah, I mean, there it has horrific elements insofar as and I won't even use my Saving Private Ryan reference I always like to, but imagine somebody's telling a story, a movie, about, you know, a husband and wife, and they have a little daughter, and she gets some disease, some physical, physically wasting disease, and that's the movie. And that would be horrific, especially if you're a parent and you can imagine your child, you know, this happening to, and seeing the parents' anguish and all, the, all that, and all, so horrible and sad. Does that make that a horror movie? No, but that's not what we're talking about here. No, but the other element is is something supernatural, but it's not even all that. They play really heavily on the otherness of it. Because it is new-ish, I guess at the time, to Western audiences, you know, reincarnation. Imagine somebody in India making a movie about the Christian idea of you know, Jesus turning his body into You bread. could easily turn that into a horror film. Yeah, but should you? I mean, well, I mean, what, no, well, wait, wait a minute. Now, are you saying that it's morally wrong for no, them to make No, not even that, but it just, it's not that, uh, I don't know. The, the central idea is a little girl died here, and now a new little girl may have the soul of the previous little girl. It's not even like it's a parasitic, possession because they stress that point well it just she has been reincarnated in here and now she's having conflicting memories in her head yeah but the the horror of that is the supernatural aspect of it the fact that you don't know what's going on with your daughter and it could seem like she was possessed but then you actually delve a little bit deeper into it and that's not what it is but yeah, I think you could make a very successful horror film out of this, and I think they start to do it, but then I don't they know, falter they added, and trip over themselves. If they added a horrific element to the reincarnation in and of itself, like there is a J-horror movie called Reincarnation, I think, and I like that movie, and it, he has to deal with reincarnation, but there's other stuff around there. Here is just a little girl is probably the reincarnated soul of another little girl and she died tragically so this little girl is having issues but i don't know i just i never felt the horror well i did in the beginning and that it's it's that you're basically being 
you have someone who is being haunted by another soul and that no another its... life but her soul it's in that and they go out of the way to make sure you know that's the one constant bodies come and go but the soul is the well that's what i'm saying is when you get to when you get to the explanation of it it takes the horror away well especially you know, when it, but I mean, in the beginning there are seeds of an excellent horror film. Uh, seeds, just, they, they never just, sprout. They just veer away from that. I mean, hell, at the very, very end, it's all, you know, she's gone, she's gone, but, you know, she lives on, and, you know, it's a very uplifting, positive message. That's funny, because I said it was a downer. I thought it was very depressing. There's elements of a downer there, but really not, if you can... I mean, what's more of a downer? You, you have... Uh, well, John- considering I don't believe in any of it, regardless, well, no, that's, then... That, that's my point I was going to make. You have John Beck, he's the father. And, of course, he is typical atheist, which means he believes in nothing! And that was also a bone of contention with me. Even when he has proof in front of him, stuff's happening. He still, no, 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 He never no. actually used the word atheist. He just said, when I die... There is nothing. There's nothing. That's pretty atheist. No I don't see any Christians coming up with that. I'm saying he never defined himself as an atheist. You don't have to use the word to define yourself, baby. I, I didn't say you did. I'm saying, all I'm saying is that he didn't. And he never actually mentioned religion. All he said was that when you die, there's nothing more. There's there is no harp, no anything. You're just gone. But he never went into the religious aspects of anything he never said reincarnation is based on religion so it's ridiculous he didn't talk they didn't talk about that with him that's all i'm saying i'm not saying he wasn't an atheist i'm saying he never said the words well regardless of but i do what title he used he did the movie trope of not believing anything even when there's obvious i mean there's a scene where the girl freaks out and she burns herself on a window and he's like oh he she could have touched the radiator and the wife's like the radiator is not even near the window oh but it's dark you could have you know you didn't see what was going on clearly it's just it's that is any person not wanting to accept something that they can't explain but guess what i hate that bullshit it is a fucking trope used in far too many movies that anybody goes to when you when you are a skeptical about anything and something is presented to you, the very first thing you do is reach for the most logical reasoning behind it, and you do the same thing. You would do it yourself. No, you in wouldn't fact, be. You wouldn't be like, oh, well, I, I, you know, she got burns on her hands. She must be reincarnated. I am agnostic about everything. You know this about me. I am agnostic about religion. I am agnostic about UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, whatever. They could exist, but until I see proof. I don't believe in it. I would feel the same way here, but there is so much proof, and he just keeps At burying... At that point, there's not. Even afterwards, I mean, the whole point of the psychic test was to bring up proof, and then at the very end, the wife is writing a letter, and, oh, Bill still doesn't believe, but I think he's starting to... It's used too much. There's always one person that believes. It's a Scully and Mulder thing. And that, that wasn't the first to do it, but, I mean, it's the most prominent in my mind. There's always one person who believes, and there's always one person who doesn't believe, and no matter what, that's the way it's going to be. 
Well, particularly when you have a film that involves a child, the parents always go in opposite directions. You always have the one parent who is, if, if it's a demon child, they are supportive of the demon child and they, they will defend everything they do. Like in, in The Omen, the father is very defensive of Damien. The mother knows something's fucking wrong, you know, at the end. And then, like, he realizes it too. But, but I, then in... I never get the impression... In Brightburns. Uh, Brightburn, that's what I was thinking of. But I, I never get the impression i never get the disbelief of it i never look at them and just oh come on you're having to work so hard at this to you know justify your opinion just open your fucking eyes i think he doesn't want to and i don't think it has anything to do with him not wanting to believe in the supernatural or him not wanting to believe in anything religious i think it's that he doesn't want to accept that this other man is the father of the of the soul that is well, no. within this little girl. That's what bothers him more than anything. There is that. I mean, there is the whole, you know, I am the father. I am the man. I am the alpha. Who are you to come in here and upset my little kingdom? Yeah, it can't. He can't stand it when she's screaming for daddy and he can't help her. But the Anthony Hopkins character comes in and she goes right to yeah, him. Yeah, I get that. You know? And I like that. I just thought he was a bit much. And when you mentioned his uh, soap opera expertise, I was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really mainly what he's known for because even as Mark Grayson on Dallas, that is a soap opera. It was yeah. just a nighttime soap opera. That's mainly what I mean, what everything is just played over the top. Um, that actually makes me think of something else that irritates me about this film. And I, you know what? It, and I hate this because I don't want... The very first episode of our ABCs to be us bashing a movie. Because I'm not bashing it. I do actually enjoy the film. It's just uh, there are things about it that I think should have been done differently. And one of, the th- one of those things is that they frequently, frequently, and I mean every character, whether it's the Anthony Hopkins character or the little girl character or even the doctor character at one point. Repetition? Yes. They will take one line and say it repeatedly for... 45 seconds, a solid minute. I guess they want to make sure you get it. Over and over and over again. No, I don't want any pancakes today. No, I don't want any pancakes today. No, I don't want any pancakes today. (laughs) No, I don't want any pancakes today. And you just, you have to watch the film to know what I mean. But if if you do watch the film and then you'll pick it out. Like you'll be like, oh, there's another one. Oh, they did it again. Oh, look at that. And if you took those moments and trimmed them down... Hell, that's probably 20 minutes right there. (laughs) I like the idea behind this one. I really like, well, I should say, I mostly like uh, Robert Weiss. He has made a few clunkers, but he has made some great films. And some iconic films. He is an iconic director. My next thing, my biggest problem with this film may be laid at his feet. And that is the acting of the little girl. Oh. Because she's a little girl, I'm going to cut her some slack and go, well, she's just getting into it. They need to have someone there to guide them. Because the shadow, the exorcist is so large in this movie, compare what she was doing to what Reagan had to go through. Mm -hmm. And it's apples and oranges. She is fine when she's just normal little girl, because I think that's who she is. But when they have to have, okay, now you got to act crazy, she is, again, so far over the top. It's comical. I laughed. Well, there's and that. that re- should not be the reaction. The regression scene where he regresses her back to yeah, when a she's baby. An, an infant, and then she's acting like an infant. And I'm like, yeah, well, you're really. 
he kind of broke the tension yes. there with that one. Like that that wasn't necessary. But another thing they do, and I don't know if this was a technical reason or maybe this was a choice to because the first little girl, the one who died and then got reincarnated, she was only five when she died. Mm-hmm. This girl's what eight or nine. Uh, I think she's 11. Oh, well, there you go. Even because, and I only say that because he says 11 years ago, that okay, was well, there when you go. The, and I, I kind of get the impression that it's an immediate thing. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Again, maybe they did it to stress the difference between an 11 year old girl and a five year old girl, but often they will dub her dialogue. Yes. And sometimes, again, when she's normal girl, she sounds normal. She sounds perfectly fine. But then sometimes they have her talk like this. She reminds me of Bob. Like a little girl, because, you know, little girls talk like this. But the problem with that is, a lot of times, that's not scenes where she is regressing to her past life. No, it's just... It'll just be, you know, hey, Dad, can I have a hamburger from Wendy's? Sure, okay, what do you want it? Why don't you put some cheese and some mayo on it? Because I like that. That'll be great if you do. And it's just like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) And it it happens all the time. Well, that's another thing I was going to say is I think it would have been more successful if the girl that died was older. Yeah. And the girl that was being... But not possessed. Reincarnated into if she were the younger of the two. I think that that would have been better. Yeah, I, I, don't I think that would have worked better, too. But, yeah, so there basically there are a lot of little issues, some big issues. You know, unfortunately, I'm not bringing a stellar film to the table. This is not one that I, I think you have to, like, ah, no. And to be honest, I have not seen this. The last time I saw this, I was in my 20s, and I didn't love it then. No. But I couldn't remember what it was that I didn't love about it. So that's why I was like, you know what? Nobody ever talks about this movie. Let's, you know, let, let me do this one. Last time I saw this, I was in my teens during my horror video stage. Um, going to the video store and renting anything they had there that was horror related. And I got this one and I was just not impressed. So I thought, you know, I'm now a full grown man. I'm mature. I'm an adult. And, you know, I can look at this with adult eyes. No, I still am not all that impressed. That is one thing I do like about it, though. This was in the era when films were made for adults. Yeah, well, that's the 70s, you know. And I appreciate the fact that these are all fully grown. Except for the girl. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, most of the middle-aged, you know, adults who are going through this. It's a very grounded piece in that respect, also, I love New York in the 70s. Yeah. Like, it's just, there are a lot of things about it that I really, really love. Um, I will mention I love Anthony Hopkins in this, but that's, you know, that's an of course. Yeah, I think his, I get, you know, and I said this while we were watching the film, I just love to hear him talk. Yeah. I love him. His delivery, his mannerisms, his diction, everything about him, I could just listen to him talk for days. I thought he was excellent. Again, I wasn't a fan of uh, John Beck, who played the other father. I, I think what about Marsha Mason? What do you think? She didn't strike me one way or the other. She was kind of neutral with me. So I guess that's good. I did, sir. If anybody out there is familiar with The Goodbye Girl, which, by the way, it, it's not a horror film, it, but it is an excellent 
romantic comedy with Richard Dreyfuss and Marsha Mason. I highly recommend it. But I did notice quite a few basically exact emotions from this film and that film. And she also has a daughter of about the same age, but it's clear that those are her, like that's who she is as an actress. And, you know, I like it though. I like her. I've always uh, been kind of drawn to her and kind of surprised that her career wasn't bigger than it was. So there's that. I mean, would you recommend this film? (laughs) It was a decent enough watch. I would consider it just a good dramatic film. And I like the for the most part, the acting and even direction. I think the little girl could have used some help when she was doing her scary scenes. And I think the father could have toned it down. But other than that, I think everything was solid. I would have a hard time recommending this to the average horror fan. Not that they couldn't get it. Not that they couldn't understand it or anything like that. It's just, again, it's really not a horror film. To me, anyways. There was nothing scary about it. It, it doesn't deal with demonic possession. or I mean, It's a real-world faith. And they don't even put a spooky spin on it. You know, there's a little bit of that, but I was that's one thing I was happy about. It wasn't like, reincarnation is evil! It was just, no, we believe that this is what happens. You, you live, you die, you live again. You get better and stronger with each life, and you, you know, keep going. It's just, it's a part of nature. There's nothing, at least to the people who believe in it, nothing all that supernatural about it. Yeah, well, exactly. And I'll tell you exactly why I think this was marketed as a horror film and why they attempted to make it as much of a horror film as they could. Because The Exorcist made a lot of money? The Exorcist made a whole lot of money. And they were like well and so i think they took this novel and they were like but it's not really it's not really supposed to be scary and they're like yeah i don't care (laughs) um now i haven't read the novel so it maybe it is but like i said i haven't read it but i feel like they took this novel and they're like well it's not supposed to be scary and they're like i don't care look at the exorcist it made a whole lot of money you know like i i just feel like that's those are some conversations that went on and that they tried really 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 hard to angle this into a horror film and the unfortunate thing is it just isn't, it isn't horrific. You know, there's, the, the underlying story here is not necessarily a scary one. No. You know, and so I think that's the the main stumbling block. And I will point out that the author of the novel is the guy who wrote the screenplay. So he went along with this. If your uh, theory is right, and I think it very well could be, that they tried to exorcist it up, that uh, he went along or, with it. Or, you know what, for all I know, maybe he was attempting, maybe when he wrote the novel, he attempted to turn maybe. this into a, to a horror story and then um, wanted to turn it into a horror film. And the thing is, it's maybe it was handled poorly. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. And I honestly would be interested to look into that. So ultimately, can I recommend it? No. I can't. <laughs> I don't know. If you're like me and you just like films like this that are from the 70s in New York about grown-ups, I have a thing about that. I don't know what it is. It just, this, films like this speak to me. I think that you can see where they attempted 
to make it a horror film anyway. And it, it just, it just really isn't scary, but it's interesting. No, it, it is that. And I don't think it's a bad film. There's some parts, that, again, when the little girl's going through her thing and trying to paw at the windows and freaking out. I just laugh at that. And maybe that's because I'm a bad person. I don't know. But I think she could have used some a bit stronger direction. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's going to wrap up the A episode of Bride of the ABCs of Hidden Horror. It's alive. Uh, we're going to <laughs> duck out now and come back with our new segment. <laughs> Bumps in a night. Welcome to the middle of the show, or as in the meaning of life, they would say, the middle of the film. <laughs> That's offensive to British people. Well, my accent certainly was. <laughs> That's my point. But welcome to our segment, which we're going to call Bumps in the Night. And this is basically a discussion segment where a topic comes up and uh, we're going to chat about it for a bit. And I'm thinking about making this a perk. Yeah, I, I can see that. People can ask us questions and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this first question was inspired by a question that was posed by one of our loyal listeners, Debbie Lynn. When she was listening to the last episode, she noted that I had mentioned that I find the movie Zombies scary, but that it doesn't keep me up at night. So she asked me, she's like, are there any movies that have kept you up at night? And my answer to that is a resounding yes. And I think my exact answer was, oh yes, there are lots. And there are. Uh, throughout my life, there have been a ton of movies that have kept me up at night. And I love that. That's why I watch horror films. Which also brings me to something, you know how when people say, you know, oh, well, it doesn't scare me. I've watched too many horror movies. You know, I'm just, I'm, you know, like, I don't even understand that statement. I mean, I have been watching horror movies since, well, pretty much before I was born. And uh, my entire life, the in full entirety of my life. And if a movie is scary and effective, it's scary and effective, and I don't think that makes me anything less. As a matter of fact, I kind of feel sorry for the people that can't ever get frightened by horror films because I think you're missing out. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of see where they're coming from. I've uh, told a story a few times. When I was a kid, I was very, very frightened by horror films. The idea of horror films frightened me. I still remember as a little kid laying in bed at night with uh, my brother, who's older than I am, and my dad and my mom out in the living room watching the Damien. And I think it was Damien Part 2. And I could hear that music, all that, you know, Gregorian chanting and all that. And that freaked the hell out of me. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was spooky. And, and for years, I would actively avoid horror movies because the idea of them was, oh, I don't want to be, I don't like being afraid. Why would I want to seek that out? So, uh... I stayed the hell away. I'd watch stuff like on Saturday afternoons, like old black and white movies edited for television. So, you know, like monster movies, but they were never really scary. The first real horror movie I ever saw was Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And I loved it. It, it literally changed me. 
It changed who I was. But I think that might be, I don't know if it's something just with me, but it's definitely a trait of mine where once I'm afraid of something, if I conquer it, I then tend to love it. I'm the same way of roller coasters. The idea of riding a roller coaster as a kid terrified the hell out of me. And then one day I finally did it, and then I instantly just loved it. And I'm a big roller coaster fan. Same, you know, that goes for horror films. So, in my regard, I don't think there's anything that keeps me up at night. Once I started watching horror films, I don't think I ever lost any sleep over one. But, there are horror films that do affect me on that level. Usually they have to deal with spirits and ghosts, so I guess that means that somehow, in some way, I do believe in them. Because, you know, well, it's more likely to have somebody do a home invasion and, you know, tie you up and torture you and do horrible things. That stuff never scares me. Doesn't scare me either. Well, even, like, I love slasher films. I'm never, I'm never scared of them. And that goes for a bunch of different types of horror films. But if it deals with something on a spiritual level, either ghosts or like demons or something unseen, intangible, then it has a chance of frightening me. I'm the same way as far as uh, I tend to be more frightened by supernatural things and zombies. And it, But not every zombie thing freaks me out. It has to be very specific. But the first film I remember scaring me, like, ridiculously <laughs> was Salem's Lot. That's when it originally aired in 1979, I was five years old, and we watched it as a family, because that's we did everything together. Uh, that was also the same year where um, the, Fall of the, House of the, the Fall of the House of Usher came on TV, and we saw Amityville Horror in the theater, and then Alien in the theater, and I have very vivid memories of those, but those didn't even really freak me out. The thing about uh, Amityville that stuck with me was uh, I was really angry, and I started crying when he was leaving without the dog. <laughs> and then when he went back to get the dog, I felt better. Yay! But Salem's Lot affected me on such a deep level that I refused to sleep and people who've been listening to me for a long time already know this story but I refused to sleep without my neck covered until I was 12 <laughs> and I didn't care how hot it was I had to have the covers pulled up to my neck and then it because this will save me and then it well then it got to the point where I could adjust it a little bit you know like well if I just have my hair over my neck I'll be fine you know a little you everybody knows vampires hate hair you start to tweak little things like that you know as time goes on but to this day scratching on my window that's gonna get me <laughs> several years ago I was reading Prey um, the Michael Crichton book? No, the short story by... Matheson? Matheson. Excellent. And I kept hearing this sound outside my window, and this is when I lived alone, and it was just a re like a, a repetitious, like a dunk, 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 and I thought someone was knocking on my window, but just, it was, I don't know, I don't know what it was. Was it that little shithead neighbor of yours? No, no, this was in a, when I lived <laughs> in an apartment, oh, okay. and I dove onto the floor and I did this army crawl over to the window and I got up to the window and I'm shaking. I mean, I was terrified. 
I looked out the window and the air conditioning unit above my apartment was dripping down onto mine. Mm. And that's what that sound was. So I went outside, I took a piece of sponge and I went outside and I put it on there so to dampen the sound. But yeah, that had me. That had me going. It was horrifying. But that goes back to Salem's Lot. Um, another one that really deeply affected me, the first time I saw it was Insidious. And honestly, that movie still scares me when I watch it. But the first time I watched it, I had a friend over and she was watching it with me. She left. She got all the way home. She only lived about 15 minutes away, but she got all the way home. I called her and made her come back and spend the night because I could not sleep. <laughs> there was no way I was sleeping in that house by myself. That Darth Maul looking son of a bitch really got you. <laughs> it wasn't him. It was necessarily like he did do it, but it was mainly the one guy who's pacing outside the window mm. and then suddenly appears in the bedroom. That's good. Holy shit. Uh, when we went to go see The Grudge, there were a bunch of us that went to the theater to see it. And then again, I lived alone. This is the same apartment. And after it was over, everybody left my house and I was there by myself now I had made my friend's brother go through and check every room in my house to make sure there was nothing in my house and I still never left the living room I never took off my clothes I slept fully clothed on the sofa all night long and I kept remembering that or and I remember that every time I opened my eyes my line of sight was uh, landed on the pet cemetery box and Pet Cemetery was another one that kind of freaked me out, and it was the Zelda character. Uh-huh. If I was ever laying in bed at night and I would think of the Zelda character, I was done for. Never get out of bed again! But in The Grudge, it was specifically the scene where the sister hides under her covers and then the ghost comes up under the covers. That and Toshio standing by the bed. Mm. That if I, even now, not too long ago, you hadn't come to bed yet and I was... I was in there, and I imagined him standing by the bed, and I couldn't, I was, I started to freak myself out a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, let's see. I remember you had me walk you to the bathroom after one thing. It was The Exorcist 3, <laughs> and it was because after I watched The Exorcist 3, I don't like going by closed doors, and uh, we have I can see that. three closed doors, no, sorry, four closed doors that I have to walk by to get to the bathroom from the living room. And I didn't, I didn't want something popping out at me. So, yeah. And even, and still, it'll. I thought about that. I got up a couple weeks ago to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and I thought about that movie, and I had to run down the hall. <laughs> I mean, it. It's. I, I'm not even. Wake me up. So. <laughs> I, I'm not even ashamed of it at all. Like not even a little bit. I don't think you should be, because to no. me that's the fun part. That's what. And then you know, people might be like, "Well, why do you like that? It's horrifying." I'm like, "Well." Yeah, but... It makes you feel something. That adrenaline rush. Because let me tell you, when I was uh, 10 and Day of the Dead came out, and after I saw that movie, I was lying in my bedroom. My bed was up against the window, and I was so terrified, Mm -hmm. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I was afraid to make a sound. And all I did all night long was I had my radio on very low so I could hear if a bulletin came across the radio. And I was listening for helicopters outside my window. And I, that sounds ridiculous as hell, but I'm, little. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> and the last time that movie freaked me out so bad was when right before I moved up here. I was living alone. 
and I watched it foolishly before I went to bed. And same thing, I couldn't, I'm just listening for anything, you know, lumbering outside my window or trying I to get remember, in. I remember, I think you called me. I did. <laughs> I did. And the zombies are going to get me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, one other thing that got me recently was the very first season of Fear the Walking Dead. There was, a, in the first couple of episodes, there was a scene where they're still in the neighborhood and like someone's looking out a window and you see one of the neighbors just kind of moseying down the street but he's clearly a zombie only they don't know that yet and I remember I went outside that night out front and I had to run back inside because I started thinking about uh, you know neighbor zombieing around I've been outside at night and you know our we don't have street lights in our neighborhood so it's very dark and you can see somebody or you won't see somebody walking down the street until they're right up on your house pretty much and I've been spooked numerous times by people walking down the street it's a it's a real thing like the struggle is real you know I get really scared sometimes I'm trying to think if there was anything else big that got me because it seems like there, you know, I had like one when I was little and then nothing until I was like a full-grown adult. And then that, that's kind of terrifying. Well, no, the I meant to say embarrassing. That's kind of embarrassing. Well, then we had the one with the Day of the Dead when I was 10. But I don't... I can't think if there's anything my, else. My first scare, and probably my greatest one, maybe because it was the first time, I don't know was back when I was around 11 or 12 and this is when I first got into horror and I started hitting a horror well the video stores all the damn time and just renting everything and I rented The Exorcist I'd heard about the movie I didn't know anything about it I just heard it was super scary so it was one of the ones I rented now at that time it was me and my mom living alone in a trailer and uh, she was working nights so by the time I went to put it on. I was all alone. Also, for anybody that has lived in a trailer, you know how, well, tinny they can be. And how they are just little metal boxes. And if the wind hits you right, it's like a sledgehammer. And the way our little trailer was set up, when it was windstorms or, you know, thunderstorms, more often than not... That wind would come whipping through, and all night you just boom, boom, it hit the side of the trailer. Whenever I'd had friends or, you know, girlfriends or just other people over who weren't used to that, and they happened to have a windy night, they were all, oh my god, what was that? And I got so used to it, I was like, eh, it's wind. And the wind comes whipping around this house sometimes. Yeah, but here it just howls. I it, love that. I love it. It's so eerie. Mm-hmm. We've had people over before, and they got freaked out because oh, yeah. it howls loud. I mean, you'd think you were in, like, a castle in Scotland or something. I was once talking to uh, Chris, the owner of Dark Regions Press, and he heard it over the phone and was like, what is that? <laughs> and I'm like, it's the wind. He's like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, it's just the wind, and it's no big deal. Yeah, it just howls, and it's fucking cool. Yeah. But anyway, so there I am, the first time watching The Exorcist. I'm home alone, at night, putting it on, 
I'm sitting on the couch. I have a big bowl of popcorn. There's a wind or a thunderstorm outside, so occasionally it's smacking the side of the house. And I'm doing all right. And then we get to the point where she has the crucifix. And right when she's like, let Jesus fuck you. And I am just, I am paralyzed. I am not moving, not breathing. My eyes are locked onto the screen. Because that's some pretty weird, wild stuff. I had never seen anything like that before. You know, again, I was like 11, maybe 12. I'm not even a teenager. Um, I don't know why my mom let me get that movie at that age, but whatever. And I'm just like, what the hell? And right at that moment, a big gust of wind slammed the side of the house that the couch was up against. And I just, wah! <laughs> Popcorn flew everywhere. I just... I jumped off the couch. I ran to my bedroom. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, See, that, uh, one, yeah, that one got me. <laughs> don't make fun of me now. Well, then I was 11 years old. What's your excuse? <laughs> I have a very vivid imagination. I guess Thank so. you very much. When I was little, little, like tiny little, I used to see Frankenstein, like I used to see the monster all over my bedroom mm. at night you know, you know how things like you put you hang something over a chair or something's hanging on the back of the door and you know it's perfectly normal you turn off the light and but it was always frankenstein's monster like i don't know what but it used to just creep me out but i would be like probably three or four and i just saw him everywhere but, one time as a kid i was uh i was walking through the house alone and it was dark everybody was asleep so maybe i went to the bathroom and i was going back to bed I can't remember that part, but uh, I had to walk through the kitchen to get to my bedroom, and I saw something reflected on the refrigerator, and I swear to God, it looked like a demon to me. I mean, it was like typical demon horns and tail and wings and all that, and I was like, nope, and I ran the other way. I slept out in the living room on the couch, because I could not pass it. I could not get closer to it. Yeah, I feel Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense where he gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. I feel him. Like, I have been there so many times. When I was little, I used to uh, walk down the hall and pretend like I was holding God's hand when I was walking down the hall. And I would <laughs> Nothing talk, can hurt me now. I would talk to him. And I, I, it's weird. And my aunt told me when I was little that uh, I should sing if I ever get scared. So that might be why I sing all the time now. <laughs> One thing that I think is really cool, this didn't scare me as much as just, I mean, it was scary at the time, but it's really just a cool story, I think, is same friend that was with me when I was watching Insidious was over at my house, and we were watching Exorcism of Emily Rose late at night, and I happened to look down at the clock on the cable box, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, the way this is mo the way this movie is going, it'll end right around, somewhere around 3 a.m., which, if you know the film, then that's significant. So, you know, we're watching the movie, and the moment the credits roll, I mean, the very moment the credits roll, I happen to look down at the clock, and it's straight up 3 a.m. Like, exactly 3 a.m. And then the power goes out. <laughs> that's funny. And I just, I was like, what? I mean, like, my heart stopped for a moment. And I turned to Jen, and I was like, so you know you're not going home tonight, <laughs> right? And then she's like, oh, hell no, because she lived alone, too. She's like, nope. <laughs> so, uh, I just thought that was perfect, perfect timing. Nowadays, for a movie to have any chance with me, again, it usually has to be of a spiritual, ghostly nature, but... 
the sad fact is I've got to be alone. Um, that's why I'm never scared when I'm watching movies with you. You'll jump at certain things, like jump scares and all that stuff, and I'm just like, eh, it doesn't affect me. Um, I'm not saying that because I'm so cool. It's just having other people around, like when I, even before I was married or, you know, maybe I didn't go on a date. I was, I would, I could go to the theater alone, and if there's other people in the theater, I was just, eh, it's a movie. I didn't feel anything. But, if I'm watching it at home, alone, at night, with the lights out, then it can get to me. You know what I used to do when I was a kid? And this might explain why there were there was that gap uh, where things didn't affect me as much. It's because I would reason them away. So if I was watching something, I would find something about the film that would mean that it couldn't happen to me. Like, oh, well, that took place in, in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I don't live in Pittsburgh. I'm so safe. It's not going to bother me. <laughs> oh, well, that took place on in may and this is september so (laughs) and i am dead serious i would do this with every movie and one movie fucked up my plan the stuff (laughs) because i lived i grew up in atlanta come on the stuff i mean it wasn't really scary but i remember (laughs) when i was watching it i was like and and i saw where it was set i I can never have yogurt again i was like shit you know (laughs) like that messed me up uh, when we went to go see Return of the Living Dead at the drive-in, I went with my mom, and the drive-in that we went to in Atlanta was right next to a cemetery. Mm-hmm. So I spent the entire movie <laughs> looking at a cemetery, <laughs> turning around and looking at the graveyard, waiting for something to happen. Like just terrified that the zombies were gonna come at me. The last movie to affect me was probably Paranormal Activity. <sighs> that was a good one. And, I mean, you can say if, whether you like it or not, whatever, but watching it again at home, alone. And I think I got it for a review, so I was actually technically doing my job. But still, just watching it at home alone, I turned off all the lights. And then what happens is with those movies, my brain starts going, you know, maybe, you know, remember that one time? And I start, like, little things. Not even scary or all that scary things, but... Remember the scene where the two people are in the bed and they're sleeping, and then, like, a hall light comes on? That is the part in the movie that scares me the most, and it's so weird to me because it's not, like, a loud sound or anything like that. It's just click. You know, the light comes on, and then it goes back off. I like it because it's possible. You could be sleeping. Your lights in your house couldn't be coming on. You'll never know. Yeah. Because if you're sleeping, you're not going to know. That's what's terrifying about it is what is going on when I'm asleep. Yeah. Which is why I have to stay awake. So I remember sitting here and just when that's going on, I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) I really like that movie. The first one especially. Yeah. Some of the sequels I like, but I really love the first one. And I saw it in the theater twice with two different groups of people. One time I saw it in Times Square and I think that was the first time I saw it. So I didn't I wasn't expecting anything. And then the theater was crowded and it was hilarious cuz there was one time when it was very quiet in the theater and this guy had gotten up and he went over to the emergency exit door and he just pounded on the door like in the, when the movie went quiet it was just like a loud just like bam and the entire theater shit their pants and then uh there was one girl who got up 
<laughs> she was there with her boyfriend, and she's like, fuck you, I told you I didn't want to watch this movie. And then she got up and stomped out of the theater, and a couple seconds later, he's just running behind her, baby, come back. <laughs> and I'm like, screw you, man. I mean, in Times Square, you paid a lot of fucking money for yeah. those tickets. I'm not leaving. I'm watching the movie. You can go wait in the lobby if you want to. <laughs> But I thought that was hilarious. That was a really good theater experience because everybody was into it. Everyone was enjoying it. And that I loved it because that movie hit the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw that movie. And I like it when a horror film can do that. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. I hope they're successful. Yeah, I want them to be. And... The thing about that film that I really do like is the subtlety of it. You know, uh, the the footsteps in the flower, mm-hmm. the hall light going off and on, just her standing creepily by the bed. That's what I think that film did well, is that it didn't have to go nuts and do crazy shit. It was the subtlety of it that made it scary. Yeah, so. I agree. Yeah, so to answer Debbie's question... I was going to say, did we even get to it? Uh, yeah, we did. There, I listed a whole bunch okay. of movies that keep me up at night. And some of them still do. Uh, if I were... Now, if we watch Day of the Dead, which we do fairly often... Yeah. It doesn't bother me, but I guarantee you, if I was watching it alone, it would. And... Uh, when you're alone is when you're thinking about stuff. When, when we watch Exorcist 3... Even if we're together, you still have to walk me to the bathroom after the movie. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm in bed at night, I still imagine Tosho standing by my bed. <laughs> so, there's that. And I wish everyone could experience that feeling. Yeah. Because, honestly, I love it. Well, like I said, it's rare for me, and i got to set it up just right. But I love when it happens. Oh, one more. And this is one that you would never expect. I, it is the most unassuming what the hell are you talking about this movie scared you title ever and it's funny because you mentioned earlier how slashers don't scare you and they don't scare me either i just don't i don't find them scary but no there's one that did and that was friday the 13th part six really yeah of all the slasher movies it's the comedic one yes the one that they purposely made funny but I guess it really that was more the atmosphere because my friend Samantha was over. We were kids at the you know when it came out and or however old I was, and after the movie, we had made a fort in my bedroom and we were going like we were about to go into my bedroom and go to bed, but we had to check every door and every window in the house, and it wasn't just me. She was terrified, too, and nothing (laughs) scares her. I mean, seriously, the only movie that I know of that has ever scared her was The Evil Dead. Other than that, nothing. She's never been touched by anything. But for whatever reason, it was like a mass hysteria or something, just the (laughs) two of us. But we just freaked each other out, and we couldn't, neither of us could go to sleep. We were in my fort, in my bedroom, up all night long, because Jason was coming. Maybe it's because that one actually has kids in it. Maybe. I don't know. And also, I couldn't do my thing because I knew some of the kids in that movie (laughs) because it was filmed in Georgia, and I went to high school with one of the kids in the movie, and then there was was another connection to it, too. It does have one moment that I really love. Do you know what I'm going to say? Um... told you about it before. It's a throwaway moment 
they specifically did it as filler to bump up the body count. Oh, the you talking about the the couple in the woods? Not the couple, but the uh, the old man. Yeah. Really? When. Uh, you're it's, gonna be the death of me. No, not okay. him. No. Oh. <laughs> no, I guess it was one of the couple. The guy goes off in the woods because he hears something. Stephen. And then he the sees Jason chopping up the grave digger. Oh yeah. And then he suddenly stops and looks at him. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you know how I feel about when the monster sees you. That's messed up. Like and that's just... the only thing in that movie that has in, that twinges me even a little bit. Oh, maybe that was it. I don't know. No, I don't know what it was about that movie, but it got me. Well, uh, anything else that scares you? Is there anything I'm going to have to keep you safe from? <laughs> no, uh, well, that was pretty much it. Again, I I like being scared. I wish it happened more often. Um, so if you, you can get scared by something, that's a good thing. Embrace it. I love it. I love it, and I would never change it. And i got to tell you, in the moment, I feel like I'm going to die. Like I, I ser- like I get legitimately terrified sometimes, and I feel like this is the worst thing ever. I just wanted to go away. Like, <laughs> but after the fact, it's a rush. Well, yeah, it's again, it's like a roller coaster. At the time, it's frightening, maybe, but afterwards, you're like, yeah, you know, I survived. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this question, I guess. I hope this long, rambling answer uh, yeah. did something for you. Uh, yeah, I hope that answered your question. And uh, thanks, and uh, we'll see what we're going to talk about next time on Bumps in the Night. I'd like to make a special shout-out to Kate Pollock on this topic as well, because she recently mentioned on her show, uh, Eternal Darkness of the Not-So-Spotless Minds. If you guys have not checked it out, I recommend it. But... I am fortunate enough to be her horror movie buddy, and so whenever, and she's in the UK, so she's five hours ahead of me, so she is often watching films super late at night for her, which will be just evening for me, and I'll get these voice messages from her, like when she was recently watching Hell House LLC, and then she kept hearing noises in her house, and she's like, okay, my house can fuck right off, but you know, British. I love that. And, but she recently mentioned that I make no bones about being frightened. And I don't. I don't at all. I love it. Attack of the Colossal Collection. 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 Hello, horror fans, and welcome to episode 20 of the ABCs of Hidden Horror Attack of the Colossal Collection. Ooh, 20. I know. It took us... Till the 20th episode to get to the A's is what <laughs> happened, but we are here. We are in the official alphabet, Yay. starting with the letter A. That's how alphabets work. And for horror fans out there, our very first movie is a horror movie. Now, as we've said before, most of our movies are horror movies. Now, we do have, you know, quite a few. We bounce around all different genres because we love film on the whole, but the vast majority of our collection... Consists of horror films. Yes. So we should have plenty enough to keep horror fans happy. Uh, For anyone who is just joining us for the first time, this is a little experiment that Brian and I have been doing for a couple of years where we are going through our entire film collection in order and talking about them. And we've been doing it for... 
two and a half years, and we are just now getting to the letter A. And we so, actually skipped over a lot of crap. Uh, we have five 50-packs that we skipped over, <laughs> and we're going to have to come back to... We're going to pepper those throughout. But, yeah, the previous 19 episodes have been... Documentaries. Documentaries, multi-packs, multi-packs and, and uh, let, uh, number movies. Number movies. So we are now starting with the letter A. And Brian, why don't you tell us what the very first movie is? Okay, well, it's also one of the very first movies we ever covered on the ABCs of Hidden Horror. I believe it was my pick. And... We're going to keep things short here. Because of that, if you want to hear more about this movie, please listen to our A episode of the ABCs of Hidden Horror. I do recommend that because uh, this is definitely a movie that's worth hearing about. Anyways, we're talking about Absentia from 2011. It was one of the first movies by Mike Flanagan. I think it was the first movie by Mike Well, Flanagan. I think he had some independent stuff beforehand or some other stuff he didn't get credited on. But for all intents and purposes, yeah, it is his first film. And it's a great one. It was one that had a troubled past. It, they started it, and then he ran out of money. Then they had to turn to, like, Kickstarter or Indiegogo, one of those, to get crowdsourcing, to get enough money to finish it up. Thankfully, they did. It is a, a Lovecraftian film. That's where I first learned about it. There was a lot of talk of this one in Lovecraft circles. In brief, it's about a woman whose husband goes missing, and for seven years he's just gone. So now they're getting ready to say he's dead. Dead in absentia, which means they think he's dead, they just don't know where his body is. And after seven years, you can do that. Well, of course, as soon as she does that, he happens to come back. And then the whole story is where was he, what happened to him, and what's going to happen next. Because the guy's all messed up physically and mentally. He's malnourished. There's wounds and broken bones. And he's just had a hell of a time, but he ain't saying anything. He ain't telling anybody where he's been. And then... He's played by uh, Doug Jones, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. He is not. There is another man. Oh, there's another guy in it. But Doug Jones is in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Looking as emaciated as ever, because he's right. a skinny dude. But uh, this is a great, great film. I love the atmosphere. I love how it... I love the story. I love the characters. Some of the acting is a bit hit or miss, because, again... Eh, it's a low-budget Very low-budget movie, so they had to use who they could afford. But I think the story more than makes up for that. And I think the direction, and especially the ending... I love it so much. Oh, yeah, it's dark. I uh, first covered this on Devour the Podcast when it first came out, and I gotta tell you, back then, I predicted that Mike Flanagan was gonna be a thing. Mm, Good on you. I did. I was like, I cannot wait to see what else he does. I hope he does something more soon. And then, of course, he did. He hit us with Oculus, and then, you know, on down the line, he has an impressive catalog. He is... He has never disappointed me. No. John Carpenter is my favorite director, and for the first part of his career, he had the most consistently good record with me. Every movie I liked. You know, not every movie was, oh my god, amazing, but every movie was solid. Up until, well, the day came where they weren't. But uh, he just has so many good movies back to back to back to back to back. Mike Flanagan is like an early Carpenter, whereas so far, he has yet to disappoint me. Mm -hmm. Every movie he's done... 
And even the Netflix TV series, the, what was that, uh, Hill House? Uh-huh. Haunting of Hill House. That's it. I wanted to say Hell House for some reason, but no, that's... We has, well, he has a great relationship with Netflix. Because yes. Because he did Hush on Netflix, and he did Gerald's Game for Netflix. Yep. And then... Before House I on Wake Hill. for uh, Netflix. Before I, well, before Netflix got a hold of that movie, it was floating around out there. Yeah, but while. they're the he ones who finally it brought it out. Before Netflix yeah. finally brought it out, and I'm glad they did. Uh, because that movie, it's a shame that that movie wasn't going anywhere. Uh, but uh, most recently, of course, he did the stellar uh, Doctor Sleep. Yep. He just keeps going, and I love that he's staying in the horror genre. I love that he's so good at it, and that he cares about it so much. Yeah, he is easily my favorite director working right now. Yes, and it all starts here. This is a good, very good way to... You know, if you somehow, for some reason, have never seen a Mike Flanagan film, which I find it hard to believe, but just in case you haven't, this is a good place to start. Yeah. Also, a little plug here for myself, if you want to hear more uh, yammering about Flanagan films, I did a little show with Duncan McLeish for the podcast Under the Stairs called Flanagans, where we went through his entire catalog up to that point, which was uh, Gerald's Game. So what did we give this one? Uh, we both gave it a 5 out of 5. Yes, a very high and well-recommended 5 out of 5. Uh, the next movie, probably not so much. <laughs> but it is fun. It is a lot of fun. It is aptly named. Uh, it's called Absurd. And boy, this movie is absurd. It's an Italian slasher. It was written by George Eastman... Uh, he, and he plays the killer in this. You made a big dude. Yeah, he was in a lot of movies during this time, getting a lot of work. A lot of these Italian, like, he did a bunch of those post-apocalyptic rip-offs. Have you ever seen Anthropophagus? And we'll be talking about that soon. Also known as the Grim Reaper. He's the killer in that. He's the killer in this. Isn't this considered like a spiritual sequel? Kind of. Something. It, ha- it has really nothing to do. It has with nothing to no. do with it. No. But just because he's in it and he's the killer, and the fact that both movies, Anthropophagus and this absurd, were directed by Joe D'Amato, so the two guys they had a good working relationship, and they're very much of a similar vein. You I know what this honestly reminds me the most of? What's that? Is Silent Rage. Yes, it does, because, okay, uh, first off, this was made in 1981, just in case we didn't mention the year. Now, in this movie, George Eastman plays this guy who can regenerate. He's like Wolverine, and nobody knows... Snicky, snicky, snicky. Nobody really knows why. He's just some uh, mutant who has, like, Jason Voorhees-like regeneration powers. And now the church is following him, specifically a priest. He's our, you know... Dr. Loomis, as it were, because they were doing experiments on him, they know that whenever he takes damage, he heals, but it somehow messes up his brain. So that's why he's going crazy and he becomes a killer. It's just his brain is getting more and more messed up every time he comes back from the dead. So the priest is trying to stop him. Meanwhile, he's running around amok. And yeah, you just can't kill the son of a bitch. Unless you kill his brain. That is his one weakness. He's like a zombie. But you do anything else to him, he just doesn't care. Well, he happens to run into this Italian family. It's supposed to be American, 
Yeah, because they're watching football. Yeah, and they really try to sell it, but they really don't sell it well. No. It's like, we're American, yeah, you know, hot dogs and beer and fireworks, and it's like, oh, stop. There's this one young girl, she's all laid up in traction in bed. I mean, she is literally wired and tied down. She can't move. And then she has a l annoying little brother and some, like, I guess, nurse slash maid? Yeah, it was a babysitter. Yeah. Anyways, they're in this house, and George happens to come across it. And, you know, he's going around doing what he does, which is kill people. It's full of ridiculous dialogue and bad decisions. Yes. Some really bad decisions. I mean, I'm talking like, you want to dropkick this kid, he's worse than Bob. <laughs> yes. So yeah, you're right. This movie is basically Silent Rage before Silent Rage and without Chuck Norris. There are some good creative kills in here. There's one, it's kind of ridiculous because it would be way too long, but he takes the babysitter, he opens up the oven, he turns it on, and then sticks her face in it. And I guess the idea is he's just cooking her face. But that I was... assumed he was trying to gas her. Well, no, because the flames were on. The heat oh. is what was killing her. Okay. That's so right. That's right. that would just take a long time. <laughs> and I don't know how well it would work because you can open up your oven. No matter how hot it is in there, you can open up your oven and get food out and look in there and do stuff. But maybe yeah, if, but if somebody's holding your... Yeah, but if you're in there time, does he actually kill her then or does she get out of that? Well, spoiler, I guess. But yeah, she doesn't no, die I mean, from that. You think she does because her face gets all black and then he kind of like throws her down. But yeah, there's that, there's uh, there's the poor girl who's all laid up in traction, and then she has to get out of traction by herself, because she knows the killer's running around the house. You know, epic showdown at the end, and how are you going to kill this unkillable killer? So it's a good movie, but it is really absurd, so they named it well. Well, it's one of those movies that the more I watch it, the more I like it. Every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more. The first time I saw it, I was... Like, what? Like, they, these are some stupid people, and, you know, they're doing some stupid shit, and it was irritating. But every time I've watched it since then, I have just come to love it. Like, it's it's fun. Like, it's a fun watch. Well, I'm a fan of Eastman and all his various, you know, cameo roles, and he was also the zombie in, oh, what the hell was it? Porno Holocaust. Where it's a porno movie where he's a zombie going around fucking people to death. Because that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was Anthropophagus. He was in, oh, what was that? He was Big Ape in a post-apocalyptic movie where he's trying to bang the last remaining woman who is fertile. It's just, he's had a weird career. And I like him. And the fact that he wrote this movie, that's pretty cool. He he wrote a lot of the movies he was in. And uh, this is... It's a slasher with Italian feel. If that's your bag, I would say check it out. We both gave it a 3.5 out of 5. In retrospect, I would probably go a 4. I might too. I mean, that has some technical issues and stuff, so maybe that's why I docked it a half point, but... It depends on what mood it catches me in. If I can just, you know, go with it or if I want to be all critical, I guess. Next up is one of the few James Cameron films that I can actually stomach. <laughs> I don't like James Cameron. Well, I did, well, 
He's a damn good director. He does a lot of wankery. Like, he... Terminator 2 is awesome. This movie is good. I think um, this movie is better than Terminator 2. No, you're high. Uh, Aliens Mom's high. is awesome. It is not. Yeah, you're, you're high. See, you're high again. True Lies is awesome. I could give a damn about Titanic. <laughs> I'd give a damn about Avatar. Avatar. But he has some solidly good, amazing films. And this is one of them. It's Terminator. the... Oh, yeah. I said Terminator 2. I forgot the first one. So Which I think go. is better. I actually do, too, but I love T2 as well. Anyways, this is The Abyss from 1989. This is when James Cameron was just getting into his whole underwater fetish that would give birth to Titanic some years later. In here... Also, he was rocking the CGI. Well, yeah. This but is... It, it looks... It still holds up. I think it looks great. It's a little dated. It doesn't hold up as well as the Jurassic Park stuff. That stuff still looks amazing. This stuff still looks very good. But every once in a while, it does look a bit, you know, PlayStation 2-ish to me, anyways. Especially the water tentacles and when it makes a little face on it and stuff. That doesn't look all that good. I think it looks good. Huh? Well, anyway, this is uh, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio... And, well, there's a shit ton of people in Oh, yeah. Michael Bean. He's a crazy Navy SEAL. They they all live and work underwater in like a... Is it a mining rig or a science rig? It's a mining rig. Okay. And something happens, and they get cut off from above, and they need to get back up to the surface, but there's a big old storm up there. The company has sent aboard the Navy SEALs on a mission... Oh, wait. That they have not been privy to. They won't tell them what they're doing. Yeah, what they don't know is a submarine went down in the area. A nuclear submarine. And uh, they need to go get it. They want to see if anybody's alive, but they don't think they're going to find any survivors. But they basically want to retrieve the warheads. Because they can't just leave that stuff lying around. Yeah. And uh, Ed Harris, he has no idea why they're there. Like, they won't tell them what they're going to get. So when they actually do end up getting this, it's a... There's a lot of fighting going on between the Navy SEALs and the and the civilians. And they because, also... Because, you know, the Navy SEALs are like, oh, we're, you know, we're taking charge now. And then they're like, no, this is my rig. No, you're not. And, you know. And there's also some, uh, like, I forget what they call it, like, underwater psychosis where people can't handle the shit after a while for being either so far down or down for so long, it begins to mess up your brain. I think in Bean's case, I think he didn't decompress properly when he came down. There was like an issue with his decompression. Yeah, but wasn't he with a bunch of guys and they he were was. all fine? Yeah, but I think there was something specific with uh. him. And then you just start seeing the psychosis set in. Yeah. And that, I love that stuff. It's it's really fascinating. Oh, there's also some really cool science fiction stuff. Like, uh, they have the Navy SEALs bring aboard this this fluid that allows you to breathe underwater, that you suck it up into your lungs, and then it allows you to breathe underwater for a yeah, certain Yeah, the idea is you're breathing oxygenated water like babies do in the womb, and this way you can go deeper. You can dive deeper because you don't have air in your lungs, which can develop air bubbles and, you know, 
embolisms and yeah, such. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and that's really that's really fascinating and cool. That's like some Michael Crichton shit right yeah. there. This is a special effects spectacle yes. like James Cameron does, but the thing I love about this is it's not all about the special effects. There are some cool characters, there's some good story, there's I just am enthralled by the entire thing. Whereas something like Avatar, there's really nothing to it except the special effects, and that's when I can't stand camera. Well, but it's nothing but a CGI fest. It is, it is literally a cartoon for mm-hmm. most of that movie. This isn't. This is a real movie with real actors, you know, real sets. They just happen to have CGI in addition to yeah. It's yeah because there are a lot of practical effects yes. too. So yeah. Anyway, this one, uh, it's. Fairly old. I would venture a lot of people out there haven't seen it. It's not really a horror film. It's more science fiction adventure, I guess. But it does have some creepy stuff. It does have... So yes. I think it would appeal to horror fans. Because naturally, the, all the underwater people, they're not down there by themselves. There's something down there with them. And then it begins to investigate them as they begin to investigate it. Yeah. So you get a bit of a mystery. You get the... It's kind of like an alien thing, yeah. except it's underwater. But yeah, don't you, I think it would appeal to horror fans. It is a good adventure action film. I would not call it a horror film. It is a, a sci-fi adventure romp, I would say. Yeah, that's what I said. And it's just... It's a good film. You know, hopefully it doesn't keep you from not seeing it just because, it, oh, it's not a horror film. It is just a good, solid film. So much so, what did you give it? I gave it a five. I gave it a four. I like it a lot, but it's not my favorite Cameron. This is one of my favorite Camerons, and uh, it's one that I've seen a lot. Next, okay, this is not at all a horror film. (laughs) This one, you can't really pretend, I guess. But it is an adventure film. It is Adventures in Babysitting, to be exact, from 1987 with Elizabeth Shue, where she plays a babysitter who ends up getting uh, sucked into going into the city uh, from suburban Chicago. She gets sucked into the city and uh, runs into Vincent D'Onofrio and some mob guys and some car thieves. I mean, there's just a whole lot of stuff going on. And Thor. And Thor. Well, that's Vincent D'Onofrio. I know, but... But it's fun. This was a movie, another movie that I watched a lot. I mean, I was 13 when this one came out, so I was right at the age where I could enjoy something like this. And it's it's rated PG-13, but uh, there's uh, some... quite or There's quite a bit of cussing in here like not like motherfuckers and all that but there's you know they this is back when pg-13 meant something if something was labeled pg-13 it was for a reason and i hey i was 13 yeah look at that um, you were the perfect audience i was i and i enjoyed it back then i enjoy it now it was really fun to go back to this movie i haven't seen it in years so going back to it now was a really good time I'm glad we did. It made re- made me remember exactly why I loved it so much. I even had the novelization. 
I, I didn't did. Know they had one. And I've read it a bunch of times. This was something that I was really pleased to visit again. This was an HBO film for me, which means it's one of those movies that HBO played a lot back in the day, so I've seen her a lot. Plus, as a very young boy coming into my manhood, uh, Elizabeth Shue was tasty in this, so... Yeah, she's really cute. Except for that part where she sings the blues. Yeah. Like, you know, they get into the blues club. I got the babysitter blues or yeah, something like that. that. Is yeah, that is so lame and cheesy. Even back then, even at 13, I hated that part <laughs> of the movie. I'm like, it's so lame and cheesy. And that has not aged well. Uh, well, I, I didn't like it back then, so... It hasn't gotten any better. And the last thing was, because it was a PG-13 movie, it means I could play it back in the video store days when I used to work at a video store. So, I've seen this movie a lot, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I like it. You know, I'm not crazy about it. If you didn't bring this into our collection, I don't think I would have it. But, uh, I was glad to return to it. I haven't seen this in, well, since the video store days back in the 90s, so... You know, it was nice returning to it. It's a silly, stupid comedy. There ain't much more to it than that, but what it does, it does well. If you're a fan of 80s comedies and you have missed a, missed this one, I would, you know, I'd say give it a watch. Yeah. It's fun. If you like stuff like The Goonies and stuff like that, it's a little more mature than that, but... It's similar. It's a kid's adventure movie. Yeah. But, you know, I can enjoy it, too. And uh, I give this a 4. I like it a little bit less. I gave it a 3.5 out of 5. The next is a long title. From 1984, it is The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Now, this is like the, almost the dictionary definition for cult film. There's... For years, you, didn't ha you couldn't see this movie unless you had a bootleg VHS. Oh, yeah, it... They wanted to make a big thing out of this. There were plans to do a whole bunch of movies of Buckaroo Banzai. But this movie bombed and bombed hard. So it developed a cult following. And those cultists have been screaming about this movie for years and years and years. I am not a member of that cult, but I do enjoy this movie. Not as much as they do, but I don't hate it as much as the, the detractors who review bombed it. In this film, Peter Weller, Robocop, he is Buckaroo Banzai. He is a half-American, half-Japanese, like, samurai, cowboy, neurosurgeon, rock star, race car driver. He's basically everything. He's anything and everything he wants to be. He is better than you. He is richer than you. He is more handsome, more witty, smarter, so on. He's like the perfect guy. And he has a whole gang of guys that hang out with him and they do stuff. And they're all quirky and weird and eccentric. Jeff Goldblum is one of them. He's like a text guy. There is, uh, oh hell, there's a whole bunch of people in here. Clancy Brown, the Kurgan from Highlander is one of his crew. Uh, Ellen Barkin is his girlfriend. And then you get Christopher Lloyd, who's like a bad guy. John Lithgow, who's the main bad guy. And essentially, aliens from the 8th dimension have come into Earth, and they look like humans. Except, for whatever reason, they all call... Their names are always John... something. 
There's John Yaya, John Smallberries, John Cookie Face, John this, John that. And they want to open up a portal with the rest of their aliens in. There's a whole second group of aliens who are like, hey, you've got to stop this because these guys are no good. And if they cross through, they're going to start messing up the whole universe. We can't have that. So unless you stop them, we're going to destroy the Earth. So there's a whole ticking clock. There's big stakes. Again, so much quirkiness. You could choke on it. But it's a decent, weird action-adventure comedy. Again, I've always liked it, but I've never loved it. What about you? I don't really like it. <laughs> the first time I saw it was because Patrick had one of those bootleg VHS tapes. Was he a fan? Oh, well, yeah. He loves this movie. I, I could never sit through it. Like, it, it just bores me. Like, I, every time I start out and I'm like, okay, this, is, I'm, this time I'm going to like this movie. And I don't. This last time... I liked it a little bit more, and I did actually sit through it only because we're doing it for this, and I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> it was a little better than I remembered, but not much. So I'm just not a fan of it, but it's just not my kind of movie, and we run into those, you know. Yeah, it happens. I mean, there are some people who just love this movie to death. Mm -hmm. but, and you know, he was one of them, and it always broke my heart that I couldn't couldn't get on board with that. I never told him that, though. I don't want to hurt his feelings, <laughs> but I just, I don't like it that much. But I did manage to give it a three, but a lot of that is for Jeff Goldblum, because <laughs> I just love Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. <laughs> I can't recommend it, but I know that I'm probably in the minority. I think most people... I think technically you're in the majority, but maybe amongst people we know you might be in the minority. Because again, this is a very cult film. Yeah. Yeah, I've always kind of felt uncool because I didn't like it, but... I like it well enough, but the reason we have it in our collection is because I got the Blu-ray from Shout Factory for review. If that didn't happen, then I probably wouldn't have it. Yeah. So, I mean... And I, I gave it a 4 out of 5, so I do really like it, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't... You know, when I sit down and watch it, I have a good time, but... It's not one of those movies that you ever say, hey, I, yeah, I, I need to watch Buckaroo Banzai. You know what would be good right now? Some Buckaroo Banzai. I don't think I've ever said that. Yeah. But, you know, hey, if you love it, more power to you. I give it a 4 out of 5. The next one is very much it was a surprise for me. I knew nothing about this movie until watching it. Did I first watch it with you or? Yep. Uh, okay. We watched it because uh, Bo and Duncan covered it on Bunkin and Doe. I mean, <laughs> Bunkin and Doe. Duncan and Bo come correct. Along with um, that movie with the worm and the, not worm, that movie with the stomach in the church. Oh, Borderlands? Borderlands. Yeah. They did that, those two on the same episode. Oh, good. They're both good movies. Uh, in this instance, I am talking about Afflicted from 2013. This is a found footage film, and it basically starts off with these two young guys. One of them has... Is it cancer? He has something wrong with his brain, or he has some sort of disease. I forget exactly what it is, but he's gonna die. Uh, everybody knows it. It's gonna happen. So he wants to live the best life he can until it does. He doesn't want to, you know, just go in a hospital and stay in there and dwell on it. And So him and his friend are like, screw it, we're going to go to Europe. 
And we're going to start here. We're going to go all across Europe. And his buddy is a video file. So he's going to film it all. And they're going to put it up on like YouTube or the web. And people are going to follow along with him. So that gives you the reason why they're in Europe. And also why they are filming everything. Which was smart. But one day, out of the blue, the sick guy... He meets up with this woman, and they're talking and laughing at a bar, and everything's fine. And then, oops, she's a vampire. I was going to say, don't spoil it, because we got yelled at for spoiling it on the page, on your Facebook page. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't really consider it a spoiler, to be honest. I think if you don't, if you haven't figured out what's going on yes. pretty much right away, then you're not paying attention. Because... I feel like it's really in your face. I at least thought it was. The point of the show is to introduce people to movies that maybe they haven't heard of or seen of, and I get that all that. But also, it's seven years old. By that time, the spoiler warnings kind of like die, in my opinion. You can't, oh, spoilers for everything. Some people get their panties in a twist when you bring up some 1980s movie. And they're like, spoilers? And like, really? This movie's 40 years old. It's not my fault you live under a rock and you haven't seen it. Anyways. Vampires. This movie is about a guy who gets turned into a vampire. And then you get a first-hand account of what that transformation is. And that's where this movie excels. Because it's all found footage. So they're discovering his powers and what he can do and what he can't do. What he's weak against. How he has to feed. And it is just... It is exceptionally well done because like many most found footage films it was made for like a buck oh five and a you know pack of gum but they do such good stuff with that the effects are really good the story and the characters i love i really feel for these two guys you really get a sense of them being really good friends and then tragedy happens and it, it's heartbreaking Meanwhile, the guy who is afflicted, I mean, he's straight up badass. This isn't something, it basically turns him into a superhero, but of course, being a vampire, you're going to have drawbacks, like sunlight, and also, you got to kill people and drink their blood. But, I think it's a, it's kind of like Chronicle. Yes, very much so. Yeah, it's very much a realistic, first-hand account of what being, in Chronicle's case, a superhero in this case, a vampire would be like. And it does some re there's some really good show-stopping set pieces in here. Okay, that I won't spoil. There's some, I won't spoil the specific parts of this. Uh, I will just say that this movie is excellent if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I told you it's about vampires, but trust me, this movie is so much more than that. Oh, for sure. And then, like I said, if you, you know that early on anyway, because the majority of the film is him learning about it yes. and dealing with it. So it's not really a spoiler, I don't think. Uh, there are some spoilers that you could give away, and and, and we are not going to do that. Yeah, so. those are the ones I'm not going to mention. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend this film. We both do. We both gave it a 5 out of 5. Yes. It was very much a... And one of my favorite found footage. Yeah. Oh, easily. You know, and just, what a good surprise. I'm so I'm sorry that maybe they have, but I don't think they've done anything else after this. And 
this movie is so good, I really wish they would have. Oh, sure. But, uh, anyways, that's Afflicted from 2013. We now go to one of my favorite subgenres, anthologies. I love horror anthologies most of the time. Some, sometimes they suck, but most of the time they're pretty damn good. And this is one of them. This is After Midnight from this 1989. Is one that I had never seen before. Nice. And I don't think. This is I very. Don't think I had. This is very much a hidden horror. I first saw it again on HBO as oh, a kid. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I did. I'd seen it. I think I saw it when we got the Blu-ray. And then we watched it again for this. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, but I had not seen it until that. Okay. Well, that's relatively recent. Yeah. There's a professor who is doing a course on fear in college. And, of course, he goes too far. He... Makes a student really, really afraid, like he pisses his pants. And then, of course, everything falls apart. And now the professor, the very next day after that, is like, I was told I can't do that anymore. But if any of you students would still like to come to my house after hours and talk about fear, well, the university can't stop us. So that's what happens. A bunch of students go to the professor's house late night, and they're going to talk about fear and how to be afraid and how it affects you and all that stuff. And that is the wraparound story for these stories. Now, unlike a lot of anthologies, there's not that much of an overt supernatural element to these tales. They're very much, they always reminded me of like urban legends. Oh, yeah. Where, I mean... Well, and honestly, the setup is kind of... The whole college professor thing, yes. you know, like an urban legend. You, you've got the uh, the England character who is teaching about urban legends, and so that kind of branches off from there. Here, you've got this guy teaching about fear, so basically it ends up what we have all these different stories, and and um, yeah, most of them are pretty straightforward, not supernatural. There's one of them, you kind of think that it might be. And the then, Haunted House? Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, which is one of my favorites, and then it ends up being very mundane. Not mundane isn't boring, but mundane is just in, it's in... It's not supernatural. It's not supernatural. But it has a nice little twist. Yeah, here basically you get a story. One of them is a couple, I think they're newlyweds even, because, you know, cliche. But in a good way. They're traveling down a long, winding road to get a flat tire. They see a dark mansion up in the hills, and they decide, let's go to that house to look for help. And then, oops, haunted house. Another of the stories is a bunch of girls are going into the city, the big, bad, wicked city. They don't say which one, but whatever. And they're there to go clubbing or go to a concert. I forget which. They're not supposed to be there. They're not supposed to be there. They're actually underage. And then they just so happen to run across a nut who has a whole pack of dogs with him. He's like a crazy homeless dude who has taken in a number of dogs. And not just chihuahuas and poodles. These are big, angry dogs. And then so the dogs begin to chase the girls all over hell and back. And the last one is... Uh, now, this is something that doesn't even exist anymore, but a woman, uh, she is an all-night answering service operator. And uh, 
They still have answering services. Do they? Yeah, I just talked to one the other day. Seriously, <laughs> I just I think with voicemail and I, everybody has voicemail. Why would you need an answering service now? Well, because sometimes it. Why did I'm trying to think of who I called that had an answering service, but I called them multiple times and left multiple messages. I don't know. I think sometimes it's. Um, it might be helpful in some situations for them to weed out who's important, like mm, mainly, maybe. like really important. And then the person that they're answering for doesn't have to worry about constantly checking their messages. They can just, you know, if something important is coming through, then the answering service would let them know. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, they're obviously not common now, but they are still around. Hmm. It's almost like answering machines. Do people still have answering machines? Older people do, yeah. Uh. Again, just, I'm so used to this modern age, <laughs> I can't imagine using that stuff anymore. My mom has an answering machine. Okay, yeah. Well, she's old, so. Like you said, older people. I wish we still had an answering machine. You know what I miss is, um, you know, you remember that tape that you can buy on Wait TV? for the beep. You gotta leave your name. You gotta leave your number. Wait for <laughs> the beep. Nobody's home. Nobody's, Nobody's home. home. Nobody's home, nobody's home, nobody's home. Yeah, back in the day, <laughs> there were TV commercials where you could order a tape. A cassette tape. A cassette tape that was all like funny answering machine messages. So when people called you, they got a funny answering machine. <laughs> just, oh, so corny. <laughs> yeah, and then there was the one was like, oh, like, oh, well, hang on, let me get a pencil. Oh, I can't find a pencil. Oh, well, and then, oh, just leave a message at the beat. And, you know... The, the goal was to get people, like, yeah. to, uh, to, to make people think they were talking to a real person, and I used to love making answering machine messages specifically at Halloween time, and I would go all out. <laughs> My roommates and I would set up this whole scenario, like, every year would be a totally different scenario, and I would do things like bang the cabinets and scream and uh have like there was one year where like somebody was chasing me through the house i mean it was like we went all out for for ah, our... he's coming he's gonna kill me but leave your name and number at the beep <laughs> i also did the uh any fans of eyes of laura mars out there the little the the lulu and michelle mm. that was on my answering machine for a while but well, i did it but it was you know that that was it was fun i used to love making those and now we don't really have those i guess i could change up the voicemail on my yeah, cell guess. phone yeah. but nobody ever leaves messages <laughs> anymore so that's not fun so i don't know anyways as for this movie okay. there's uh three short stories plus to wrap around they're all solidly good they're well made well directed well acted uh, I don't know why this movie has kind of slipped under the radar for a lot of people. I don't either. Honestly, I think that this would be a good candidate for ABCs. Yeah, it would. It definitely would. Anyway, so if you haven't seen this film, check it out. I got this Blu-ray, I want to say Screen Factory? Yes. So they have a new Blu-ray of it. It's easy to get, and I highly recommend it. So much so that... Jamie gave it a 4.5 out of 5, and I went with just a solid 4. It is a damn good movie. I like it. Well, it's... As much as I enjoy anthologies, it's often difficult to find one that is completely solid all the way through. And True. And I feel like this one is. Yeah, I agree. We now go to 1997. 
a Harrison Ford film, Air Force One. This was a first time watch for me. Nice. Uh, this is just a good, solid action flick. Here, Harrison Ford is the president of the United States. Goddamn, I really wish he was. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he flies over to Russia and he helps them capture some notorious Russian terrorist guy. He's like a Russian hardliner, so he's like communism forever and all that stuff. So, of course, America wants to capture him if Russia's gonna let us, and they do. And everybody's happy. And then when he gets back on the plane, he has his wife and kid with him and all the, you know, various congressmen and secretary of state and whatever the hell. They go flying back to America. Well, unbeknownst to them, some crew of Russian reporters come on, you know, to do a story about the American president. But aha, they really are terrorists who are loyal to the Russian guy who just got captured. They take over the plane and are like, look, we're going to kill everybody unless you let this Russian dude out. And one of the head terrorists is played awesomely by Gary Oldman. Of course, Harrison Ford, he is not captured when this goes down. He eludes capture and he hides in the bottom of the plane for a bit. But then, being an ass-kicking president, he can't just sit there while these guys go around killing innocent people. That's what I love about him in this is he's like, they want to take him away and keep him from getting into trouble. Well, yeah, they have a scene like, where they, they get him to the escape pod. And I'm like, you can go! Now get out of here! And the escape pod launches. So for a while, everybody, the Russian terrorists and the people on the plane, they think the president escaped. And, you know, some people are happy. The Russian terrorists are obviously pissed. But no, Harrison Ford did not take the escape pod. Mainly because his wife and kid is up there. Yeah. I mean, if it was just, you know, his political friends, he might have just said, screw it, and you know, ran away. But he ain't going to leave his wife and kid. So, it reminds me a lot of the Steven Seagal movie Under Siege, where, you know, it's a very tight, confined place with terrorists and one guy against them. Kind of like a diehard. Except here, it is even more of a tight, small place, because Air Force One is a big plane, but it's still not that damn big. So it's a whole big cat and mouse thing of Harrison Ford versus terrorists and Gary Oldman trying to kill people and it is just, it's a really really good film. It is good. I enjoyed this quite a bit. Like I said, it was a first time watch. I remember when it came out. It's just one of those movies that I just never got around to watching. And I always love Harrison Ford and Gary Oldman so I'm glad that I finally did. And then when I did, I ended up giving it a four. And so did you. Yes, it is solid. If you like action movies, this is a good one. It's not over the top like Commando, but it's still just a damn fine film. Yep. Next up, we have what I consider to be the greatest spoof ever made. I agree. I don't think there is one that tops this one at all. And considering I just said that, and considering we're in the A's, people probably know what I'm talking about. At least I hope you are. Uh, especially since it's the next movie after Air Force One. Hmm. So that's a bunch of hints to say, I'm talking about Airplane from 1980. One of the, no, the greatest disaster film spoof ever made. Well, this is by Abram Zucker and Zucker. They went a long way to forming my opinion of what makes good comedy. From back in the day writing the Kentucky Fried movie, to making this film, 
to coming out with Top Secret, and then they broke apart and started doing their own things to lesser success, but Abrams, Zucker, and Zucker were the shit. And this is one of those movies where it's just scene after scene after scene of extremely memorable, quotable lines. Hell, it's been 40 years. This year is the 40th anniversary. It has been 40 years and people throw out lines from this movie and you know what it's from. If someone says... Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> you know what they're talking about. If someone asks you if you've ever been in a Turkish prison, or if you've ever seen a grown man naked, or if you've... I mean, people know what, what that comes from. You know, and you can throw... There's a quote for almost every occasion. You know, oh, I picked the wrong week to stop... Sniffing glue. Sniffing yeah. <laughs> Quick, we gotta get these people to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients. But that's not important right now. (laughs) I love this movie so much. It is so ridiculous. It is rapid-fire comedy. These guys are throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. Now, not everything does, but most of it does. I mean, again, this is my kind of humor. Don't don't get no help. (laughs) Shit. Stu- I mean, you've got Leave It to Beaver's mom <laughs> speaking jive. Stewardess, I speak jive. <laughs> it is a. Uh, I dug her rap. <laughs> it's basically about an airplane and uh, one. It's a spoof on the airplane disaster movies, which were big in the late seventies, like Airport seventy seven. Yes, and then. It's like everybody dropped acid and they just made crazy shit about it. And it's Leslie Nielsen who, who is basically the spoof king. Yeah, if you know who... Because of this and, and other movies. But if you know who Leslie Nielsen is, this is the reason he became what he became. Before this movie, he always played a straight guy. Yeah. He, you know, he was always the dramatic lead or, you know, the handsome leading man or... Or the, uh... The rapey bear wrestler, if you're talking yeah, about the animals. But here he found out he had comedic chops. He had good timing. And he that's w- pretty much what he did from then on. Yeah. Out. Like, uh, well, he did this and then at the Naked Gun movies. The Naked Gun trilogy. Yeah. Which we have and we'll be getting to. But uh, this is just, it's the first one. If you look up spoof in a dictionary, there's a picture of this movie because this is the iconic definition of that Mm -hmm. it is just it is so good i mean from the very beginning the opening title spoofs jaws yes and it just doesn't stop it is non-stop hilarity i mean it seriously to this day makes me laugh out loud oh yeah and just there's there's so many nonsensical scenes in this i like the one where the guy is you know dressing in front of the mirror and he's putting on his cap and his glasses and straightening his tie. Then he walks through the mirror into the room beyond. It's like, what? (laughs) There's a scene where somebody's like, oh no, shit's really gonna hit the fan. And then they show a fan and they show a piece of shit smacking into it. What? (laughs) Oh, this movie just cracks me up. This movie is an absolute good um, there's nothing bad I can say about it. I think it all works. Even the jokes that miss are weird and strange enough where I can get at least a, uh, 
out of me. Whereas many, many, hell, I'd say most modern comedies, they'll be lucky to get that from me at their best. Yeah, they, I mean, even the jokes that didn't, you know, necessarily age all that well. And there's some, because um, this is an old movie. It Even then, they're still funny. Yes. Like, it's, it's, it's just funny. It's, uh, it's funny. I love it. I love it. You will not find too many straight-up comedies in her collection. Because, by and large, I'm not a huge fan. But the ones I like, I really like. I brought a lot to the table. Yeah, and a lot of them are crap. But uh, They're not? <laughs> when this was strictly my collection, you would have even less comedies. Let's put it that way. But the few comedies I had, I loved. And this is one of them. So, yeah, this movie is just amazing. I cannot recommend it high enough. Big surprise, we both gave it a 5 out of 5. Maybe some of you youngins may not be hip to the humor anymore, or not get it, or not like it. If so, that makes me sad for you, because this movie just cracks me the fuck up. Next is Airplane 2, the sequel. Because, of course... Which is actually the title. Yes. It's, it's called Airplane, Airplane 2, <laughs> the sequel. Because Airplane was such a huge hit when it came out, naturally they're going to do a sequel. Here is another Airplane and Trouble movie, except this time, it's not really an airplane, it's a space shuttle. It's like the first consumer, passenger. yeah, passenger flight to the moon. And then, of course, things go wrong. So you not only get airplane-like comedy, but they can work in some 2001, like, HAL references and everything else. I mean... Oh, and Shatner's in They got Shatner in here. A uh, lot of the same cast from the original oh, film. Oh, yeah. Actually, the thing about this movie is it is funny. It's very funny. But there are a lot of the same gags That's, from the original film. That was my problem. Watching this, we watched this back-to-back -back from the first one, and it's not directed or even written by Abram Zucker and Zucker. But you'd be hard-pressed to tell, because whoever they did get to write it and then direct it, they really did a good job at aping their style. Well, Unfortunately, it was too good of a job. It was more like ripping it off. Well, yeah. I mean, seriously, a lot of the same, exact same jokes. They do that. They'd have some of the exact same setup and then delivery. And it's like, what? Now, granted, Airplane was 1980. Airplane 2, the sequel, was in 1982. And this was before... I saw this in the theater. I did. I seen both of these on video first time. But anyways, what I was going to say, this was before the video store boom really hit. There was VCRs back in 1980, but they had yet to really dominate and spread all over everywhere. So, the idea was, if you'd seen the first movie, chances are you've only seen it once, and then at a theater. So, the idea was, I guess they thought it was safe to reuse some of the same jokes. Because, hey, if it worked before, it'll work again. The problem is, when you watch these movies back-to-back, -back, that sameness really stands out. And that's a shame, because I remember really, really liking this movie. I never liked it as much as the first one, but it was always a solid, funny film, because it was so much like the first one. Well, you know what's funny is, I never really cared for this one as much as I did the first one, and until we watched it this time, I was always under the impression in my head that it was just far, like, really inferior 
to the first one. Well, then when we watched it this time, I was like, well, no, it's not. It's almost, you know, this. it's almost as funny, but the problem is it's practically the same movie. I mean, it's just because they hit, that's how many jokes, gags, yeah. they just redo. It's kind of unreal. Like, you could probably make a drinking game out of it, but I wouldn't recommend it because it'd be very dangerous. <laughs> but if, you know, take a shot every time yeah, they have recycled a joke, you'd be in trouble pretty quick. Yeah, I but, you know, Oh, and thinking back, I actually saw the first one in the theater, too. Aren't you special? Yeah, well, I was six. <laughs> and there are boobies in them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is a PG film, but this is when PG still meant something. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Anyways, what did you give this? I gave this one a three. I think it's still worth your time, but uh, like I said, it's just basically a lot of... It is funny, but it's funny because they recycled them, and they were funny the first time. I liked it a little bit more than you. I gave it a four out of five. Next is a movie from 1976. It's called Alice, Sweet Alice. Back to horror. Yes. This one always struck me as an American take on the Italian Jallos. Yep. It has a lot of that repressed sexuality. It has uh, the cool murders, a mystery on who is doing the murders. Well, it just also it looks and feels Italian to it, me. And it has a scuzzy feeling to it, especially with that one neighbor who's big and fat and mm-hmm. probably a pedophile. He's always coming on to the little girls. Anyways. With the pee pants? Yes. And all the kittens? Yes. Here, it's, this is a very religious film. It's all about a Catholic family. That also makes me think of Italy. It's Yes. It's I just get a very Italian feel from this. The blood in this is very Italian. Like, my favorite red. The it, melted Italian, crayon look. Yes. Um, it's, honestly, I would believe it in a second if somebody had told me this was just a straight-up giallo. Oh, straight from Italy. But uh, it's not. But that's how it comes across to me. What's it about? Well, it's also Brooke Shields' debut. Yeah, as a little girl. This was her first movie as a very little girl. And so on the day of her first communion, she's found dead. Yeah, they kill a kid right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And Brooke Shields, no less. Uh, She just is dead in the, the very beginning of the movie. And she has a sister. Sister is a little bit older, but she's also a little bit... Stranger. Yeah, nobody really likes her. No. Well, she's off-putting. I mm-hmm. mean, you can tell there's something wrong with her. I mean, she might be a full-blown psychotic, or she could just be a little bit weird. But there is something there. Yeah, everyone always thought of Brooke Shields as the nice one yeah, and the pretty one. The pretty one, the, the perfect you know, one. You know, and uh, Alice is kind of a little bitch. The other one. Yeah. And so, right off the bat... Fingers are kind of pointing towards the little girl, Alice. That's another cool thing about this movie. Not only do they kill a kid in the beginning, but then they try to pin it on a kid through the entire thing. Well, she might be the killer. It is a mystery. And at different times during the film, you can see the killer. The killer looks really cool. It has one of those clear, opaque, plastic face mask like, like the Halloween mask but with the makeup on it yes and then they're always running around in a little yellow raincoat so 
you know, shades of the red raincoat from, uh... Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now always enter my head. And, you know, somebody's going around killing fools. And it could be this girl, Alice, or it could be somebody else. And so it just, it is a good jallo. I think it is a straight-up jallo. Not jallo-like. Which means it's a murder mystery with some violent kills and some sexuality and a lot of religious overtones. But it is very solidly made. If you've never seen it, it has an excellent ending. Honestly, this time we I have always in the past focused on the mystery portion of it, the murders, you know, the, the kills, the, all of those things. This time when we watched it, I focused on the religious aspects of it. And there's a lot of stuff going on concurrently with this story, but within the religious world, within yes. Catholicism. And it's really interesting and cool how they tie that in. And that's something I never paid attention to when I was younger, but when, um, or hell, even I only watched it a couple of years ago, you know, just the last time I watched it, I didn't even really pay attention to it then. But when we watched it for this, I really picked up on it and started paying attention to it, and I think it's really cool. Like, just the religious stuff is fascinating. So there's a lot of depth here. Yes. Uh, you could tell the people who made it, they're obviously either lapsed Catholics or still practicing. I would say they're probably lapsed, because I have some issues with the church. But uh, it's a good murder mystery where you get to see this family come apart. Because one daughter gets murdered viciously, and then it all looks like the other daughter might have done it. And of course, mom's in denial. She's trying to protect her one remaining daughter. But more and more evidence starts piling up, looking like she's a crazy little killer. Meanwhile, the killer is still out there killing people. And then the estranged father, because they're not divorced, because again, Catholic, he comes back and he's looking for the killer and he starts his own investigation, very Jallo-like. And just, you know, it goes on from there. If you've never seen this movie, I highly recommend it. Especially if you are a fan of the Italian Jellos. Or if, I don't know, maybe you don't like Jellos because they're always speaking Italian or something. Uh, give this a shot because, you know, everybody's speaking English. You and I both gave this a 4 out of 5. Not really sure why it's so low. I mean, not that that's a low score, but I would have anticipated I scored it higher than that. Even uh, maybe 4.5. Not that that's a big deal, I guess. Now on to a box set, but they're all together. So, uh, we just kind of, like, put them all together under the A's. And I'm talking about the Alien movies. Not all of them, because fuck that Prometheus horse shit. And the Alien, what was it, Covenant? Mm -hmm. I tell you, Ridley Scott is the worst thing to happen to aliens. Period. He made a great first movie... And now he just seems set on fucking over his own mythos and pissing on everything. I didn't hate Covenant. I hated it. I hated Covenant. I hated Prometheus. Both those movies can go to hell. Yeah, I know. You say it all the time. Yeah, good. I'll say it one more time. Fuck those movies. But we don't have to talk about those movies. Because we don't own them. What we do own is the Alien Anthology. It is an awesome Blu-ray box set by 20th Century Fox. And it has Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Aliens, and unfortunately, Alien Resurrection. But first things first, Alien. 
from 1979. We're going to make this short and sweet because every podcast out there has talked about Alien. Don't tell me they haven't. And don't tell me you haven't seen the movie. Well, I was going to say every horror fan out there has seen Alien, but that's not true. Alien is a masterpiece. It is cosmic horror at its most cosmic. It is uh, monster horror. It is suspenseful. It is claustrophobic. It is just gnarly. It has one of the most memorable movie monsters of all time. It's It gave us one of the baddest final girl heroines, whatever you want to call her, of all time. And it is just good from start to finish. Launched her career. Yeah. I mean, it's very much a haunted house movie in space. And you know, I, can't, I hear that a lot. That is a that is a description that a lot of people use talking about Alien. I don't understand it. What does that mean? Well, because very much, I mean, it is very much like the spaceship. The setting is very much a character in this film. This isn't just a, you know, generic spaceship where everything's neat and tidy and well-ordered and makes sense. I mean, hell, there's a scene where... Somebody goes in a cargo bay looking for a little itty-bitty alien, and it's raining on him. How the fuck do you explain that? But you don't have to, because it's awesome. I just always figured it was drippy, drippy pipes. I'm know. sure it is, but do you think when we send up the space shuttle, it's leaking? No. Yeah, that makes no damn sense. Yeah. But it's cool. Well, this has one of the best scares in horror history. The vents? Um, no, I was talking about the, the chest burster. Oh, yeah! But the also, infamous I'm, one where nobody knew supposedly. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the vents, though, because uh, Tom Skerritt, that whole bit where you're, you're watching the little flashing, but you're tracking them, that is terrifying. Yes. Like, I, I really think it's ter- There's a uh, the amazing jump scare in the beginning where you, the alien face hugger first comes out of the egg when they're doing the exploration. There's the, the scene with Tom Skerritt in the, in the vents, which is phenomenal. There's the chest bursting scene, which is just iconic. That one kept me off spaghetti for <laughs> years. I mean, seriously, I couldn't eat it because I kept thinking about that scene and it just ruined it for me but uh and then if there's this scene with ash that put me off milk for a long time i is oh and jonesy jonesy's awesome jonesy is awesome there's a beautiful shot where you see him watching what's going on and it cuts to the cat i i love that shot it's a beautiful shot this whole thing it looks amazing this is a beautiful beautiful film this is when Ridley Scott still knew what the hell he was doing. I mean, he made some amazing films, and this is one of them. Again, you've seen it. I know you have, but just in case you haven't, you really need to. It doesn't get much better than this. In fact, this film is often at the top of people's best horror of all time lists, and rightly so. I love it from beginning to end. It is a bit measured. It is a bit of a slow burn at the start, but that pays off at the end. I never considered it that, but I don't know. This is a movie that I grew up with. I've been watching it my whole, I mean, pretty much the entirety of my life because I was four when it came out and it has a very special place in my heart. It's one of those movies that I can watch anytime. 
I find it genuinely scary. And uh, it's just impressive. And this is also, back in 79, they were still making horror movies for grown-ups. Yes. So this is uh, right in there with all the movies that we always talk about whenever we talk about grown-up horror. You know, <laughs> Don't Look Now is one. Um, the Changeling. The Changeling is one. The Shining. Um, invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. It's, you know, there's... Before, it was a big teen thing, but after it was a kid thing, it was a grown-up thing. And this is one of those mature horror films. Not a teenager in sight. Nope. Anyways, that's Alien. It's perfect. It is amazing. We both gave it a 5 out of 5. Now on to Aliens from 1986. James Cameron. A masterpiece that Jamie is on crack. Uh, she has famously never liked this film. I do not get that. I don't know why. I give you the I give you yeah, the reasons. Yeah, it all makes the time. no sense. Of course, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it don't. It does too. Because you should watch this movie in and of itself, and as a movie in and of itself, it is amazing. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. For first of all, if you. I guess you can watch... I, if I had to watch a cut, I would watch the regular cut because the director's cut is bullshit. Well, that's... It's straight-up bullshit because Cameron doesn't know how to edit himself. No, he doesn't. But and I'm talking about the theatrical cut. Talk about the theatrical cut. Then what you've got are really annoying characters. No, I don't know how not. anybody likes these characters. They're I awesome. No, they're annoying as fuck. How? What, but, what do well, they do that's annoying? Got the one chick... Who's that chick that was in Near Dark? Vasquez. Yeah. Oh, God. I, she is awesome. I can't stand her. I know. I can't stand her. Hey, Vasquez. So, anyone confuse you for being a man? No. Anyone do that for you? Or whatever. I'm paraphrasing. She is badass. No, I she, love Vasquez. Every one of these characters is so far over the top. It's just, it's, even the Bill Paxson character, I can't stand He is he, awesome. You no. Know, every time he opens his mouth... I just, it just makes my teeth grind. I don't, and then you've got Newt, who I want to punch in the fucking face, and... Newt is the one, the one weak point in this film. I give you that. I don't, I never cared much about her. I don't, you know, feel protective for her. I don't, oh, poor little girl, running high. I, she's not an actress, I mean, and there's a reason why this is her only movie. She's not good in it. I don't know why they cast her. She's okay, but... Of all the people, I mean, Paul Reiser is so great as the sleazy, scummy He's good, but corporate I, love, man. I love Paul Reiser anyway, so... Bill Paxton yeah. is amazing. He begins as this... Game yeah. over, man! Game over! But that's what's awesome. He no, begins as amazing. this macho, yeah, we're gonna go in there, we're gonna fuck everything up. And that's all he does, is he says that the entire time. Until, until the gets, shit hits the until fan. Until it gets to that point where... Then he's all like, game over! We're all gonna die! Grates all over me. That's called a character turn, baby. Maybe you didn't get that, but that's good writing. Yes, but it's not good acting. That's the difference. It's Bill Paxton. He can't do bad acting. Well, he just did. No, that's bullshit. You've always had a bug up your butt about this film just because you could, you know... I am a unique individual. Everybody loves aliens, so I don't. That has dick to do with... You were a hipster douchebag before hipster douchebags were a thing. You are full of shit. You know that's not why I have a problem with this movie. I have a problem with this movie for all the reasons I've mentioned 
previous. Which are bullshit. Also, because it's not a horror movie. And it's not. Now, I will give you that. It is a straight-up, balls-to-the-wall action film. And as that, it succeeds wonderfully. Now, some people do say, well, there's horrific elements in here. And there are some. I mean, there are some scenes of suspense and tension where they're creeping around, listening for the aliens and stuff like that. But I also don't like that there's a lot of aliens. I think it's scarier when there's just the one. Well, it is, and that's why that's a horror movie, and this is an action film. You really couldn't do an action film with just one alien. I will. I, he would jump out and go, "Ha, bang, we win." Well, like I said, <laughs> I don't like the fact that you take one of the most perfect horror films ever made, and then you and then you it sequelize it into one of the most perfect action films get ever made. Rid of the horror completely. That's what makes this movie. So amazing. That's what makes Cameron... Yeah, yeah, I don't like James Cameron either. You're gonna wear a beret, put on your skinny jeans, grab your black glasses. <laughs> that that outfit combination is horrible. I don't know what <laughs> hipster you've been hanging out with, but they don't dress like that. Are hipsters still a thing, by the way? I don't know. I mean, years ago, they were all the rage. Now you don't really hear much about them. No, I... You don't. That's true. Anyways, you don't like this film, and I really can't fathom why. I just told you why. It's baby. It's like you can shout it all you want to. It's like you're speaking Martian. I don't understand. Well, whatever. Uh, this movie is so damn good. There's a reason why everybody loves this film. But of course, you need to be different, special, and unique. So you don't like it. We get it. Whatever. I give this a... I'm just not afraid to have an opinion that doesn't oh, matter. because you're so this. fiercely independent. No, because I'm <laughs> fucking honest. Tell me about the things you liked before they were cool. <laughs> she just fucked me off. <laughs> Anyways, uh, as for this masterpiece, uh, you give it a 2.5 because you're on crack. I give it a far more apt score of five out of five. That's crazy. No, it is it is a masterpiece. About this film, hell yeah. Unfortunately we now go to Alien 3. I like this one. Actually, I like it better than most people, but it is heavily, heavily, heavily flawed. Now this is David Fincher's first movie. This is from 1992, and yes, this is the first film by Fincher, and Fincher is one of my favorite directors. He's another one who has done no wrong, as far as I'm concerned. There, are, I have yet to see a Fincher film I didn't love. Except for this one. I don't love it. I like it. I feel sorry for it, because I, I can see what he was trying to do, and I wish the studio would have left him alone and let him do his thing. But this movie reeks of studio meddling. You know why I like this one? Why's that? Because he tried to bring the horror back. Well, that yeah. was what his goal was. And I feel like if they had left him alone, he would have succeeded. Yes. Once again, you get one alien with this group of people who are very isolated and can't really escape. They don't have weapons. And they're not they are not the colonial marines. They don't have a shit ton of machine guns and all that stuff. Uh, in fact, they don't have any guns. It really is a train wreck at times. There's things in here I really like, and then there's some things that leave me scratching my head going, what the hell? Uh, the story, if you just in case you haven't seen it, Ripley, Newt, and Hicks survived the alien onslaught in Aliens. 
but as they were drifting through space and cryo sleep, one little face hugger happened to come on board, and then he fucked everything up. The ship crashes. Uh, Newt and Hicks are, you know, like they're just they're written out. That is such bullshit. That's what a, a, that's one thing a lot of people have problems with. Well, yeah. I didn't really care for their characters, so it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I know. You hate them because you're a hipster. But anyways, um, well, you are, baby. But are you going to tell me that you think this movie would have been better with Newt running around? Newt, I could give a damn about. I wish they would have kept Hicks. I really do. He was a good character. In fact... Actually, I did like his character. If you go back in the day, before this movie came out, there was... A series of Aliens comic books from Dark Horse. Those were damn good, and they basically picked up with Newt and Hicks as the main stars. Wasn't that Michael Bean again? Well, in the comic book, it was a drawing. But no, in the movie. In the movie, it was supposed to be, but because they gave him such a shit part, he was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. And in fact, if you want to use my face on screen, if you show my image at all, you're going to have to pay me. And he came up with some, you know insane amount of money so good for him he got paid for whatever the reason they just totally wrote those characters off and then once again focused on ripley and this is when i was really getting sick of the whole ripley thing you don't need ripley to have an alien film i know i know that's heresy oh my god how can you have aliens about ripley because the aliens are cool enough mysterious enough scary enough awesome enough you don't always need to have ripley in the picture it's like the only time they ever, you know, break out of the blackness of space is when she's around. And that's just stupid. But hey, whatever. Anyways, they crash on this planet. It's a planet. It's a prison planet, but it's a neglected one that only has a handful of prisoners left. And they're all part of like some religious order. And they all have to shave their heads because the planet's infested with lice. So that's kind of cool. The alien actually impregnates a dog which gives birth to the alien in this movie, and some of the dog's aspects transfers with the alien. And this was the first movie to do that. Before, you'd only seen aliens that were birthed from humans, so they all looked and ran and moved like humans, for the most part. Here, this alien moves most of the time on all fours, and they also started doing stuff with this. It was wicked fast, and it could climb up along walls and ceilings and just fly at you. I want to put a pin in that alien-human hybrid thing for the next movie. But, uh... (laughs) But, uh, I like the alien in this film. I love it. I think it's really scary. Sadly, this was also during the dawn of the CGI thing, and some of the CGI really doesn't hold up now. I agree. I mean, it's bad. overall, I, I have a good time with this movie. I've seen it quite a few times, and I... I enjoy it. I wish it was better. Again, I like the movie for what it is, but there's so I see so many glimmers in it when I watch it of what could have been better, of what should have been well, better. Well, you know what's interesting is when I watch this movie, I really don't see why people are complaining about it. I don't understand. I don't understand the complaints because I watch it and I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't think it's alien, not even close, but it's perfectly fine. I don't know. There's a scene I really like when they're in the mess hall I don't know, it's probably not called a mess hall. Cafeteria? I don't know. That I think is... It's it's, come, it's kind of like a standoff scene. I think it's very tense 
and does a lot with the characters, you know. And I think there's some cool characters in this. There are. I like the Doctor and the reason he's there. I like some of the convicts. I like the second-in-command of the prison. Not the warden, but his, like, right-hand man. What is his name? Like 82? 82 or 86 or something like that. And during the film, you find, why do they keep calling him 86? And they're like, well, we took a look at his files, and that's his IQ. <laughs> oh, that makes me sad. It does, but it's a, what's up, 86? Don't call me that. <laughs> and it is a good, solid film, but it could have been so much better. You and I both gave it a 3.5 out of 5. Now we go five more years into the future to 1997 and the fourth Alien film. This was written by Joss Whedon, and like many things Mr. Whedon does, if it's a hit, he's the first one to take credit for it. But if it's a bomb, like this movie, or like his Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, he will always, always, well, you know, they messed it up. They didn't follow my script and the director and this and this. He will point the finger at everybody else. But if it, again, if it's something people love, then he's like, yes, I wrote that. Aren't I wonderful? I, I am a fan of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show, not the movie. But I like the movie. I don't. But uh, I always found that kind of shitty. You know, take all the credit when something's good, but try to run away from the blame when something's bad. Anyways, this movie is set like 500 years in the future or something silly like that. The corporation, actually the military, the corporations aren't even a thing anymore, which is stupid. Wayland yutani they have a joke. It was bought out by Walmart. Ha 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 ha! Fuck you. The military has some of... Sigourney. I don't think it's really unbelievable that a corporation wouldn't be around 500 years later. I know, but Wayland yutani was there from the start. They have always been the big bad. To throw them away and now just have it, the government. Fuck you. That is so bullshit. Anyways, the government has some of Ripley's blood. And because she, she had died at the end of Alien 3, because... Sorry, Weaver didn't want to make any more alien films. I wish she would have kept to that. But hey, money. They want to bring her back because at the time of her death, she was impregnated by an alien. And not only an alien, but a queen. So, of course, you know, the government would love to get that. So, for untold years, they've been cloning her out of her blood, trying to raise her up to get the alien out from her. And this way they could, you know, examine and research and test the alien eventually and they weaponize it and well, of course everything is about weapons well yeah i mean they are the military that's what they do there is a second spaceship and they're like bounty hunters and here's the thing i mean they're supposed to be the guys we're supposed to care about but they're dicks they are slavers they are capturing people delivering them to the government so the government can in turn impregnate them with aliens to see what the hell happens. So these are not good guys. And, you know, that's fine. You can have a movie of morally uh, gray characters. But these guys are arbitrary assholes from word go, and we're supposed to care about what happens to them. No. Fuck them. The fact that this movie is written and directed like shit helps with that. Anyways, you get Winona Ryder as a little lady fembot who wants to save 
people from the aliens because she remembers what has happened. You get Sigourney Weaver playing Ripley once again, but now she's like Ripley mixed with Xenomorph because they cloned her and she's artificial and she has like super reflexes and metal nails and she bleeds acid. Not as powerful as the alien acid, but still acid. And then you get the aliens running amok on this space army ship because they... Of course, the aliens always get out and are always going to go crazy and kill people. And that's basically this movie. Up until the end. When the movie really shits the bed. And the queen alien suddenly stops laying eggs and gives birth like a human or a mammal, I guess. She gets a womb and she has one baby and it comes out, and it's an alien-human hybrid that just looks horrid. And then the baby just smack. Oh, fuck this movie. I do not recommend this to anyone. It has some decent parts in it. Like, they have a part where the alien's swimming underwater. It's CGI. It looks kind of hokey now. But it's fun. There are some fun moments in here. I like this scene where Ripley is going through... The lab and coming yes. across the various incarnations of her. They see all the previous times they tried to clone her. And of course they kept fucking it up. So there's all these mutants and twisted bodies of her. In fact, she's one that's alive. She finds one of her uh, siblings, I guess, still stretched out on a table. And she's all twisted and just mangled. And she's like, kill me. So that's cool. I mean, there are some decent ideas in here. But as a whole, this movie sucks. Uh, I don't know who the director is. I don't know if he ever did anything after this, but he is horrible. The acting is horrible. The human-alien hybrid is horrible. I mean, there's very, very little I can say about this movie with any positivity. And that's a shame. It's also a shame because up until the recent uh, Ridley Scott bullshit... This was the end of the series, and just what a whimper to go out on. I don't hate it. I think I like it a little bit more than you do, but I'm not crazy about it. No, you do. You gave it a 2.5 out of 5. Which is honestly, that's the same score I gave Aliens. I know, because so, see my previous comments about you being on crack. It's right in line with Aliens. Not even it's close. It's the same. Nope. It's the same movie. Yeah, it's not even. <laughs> I, however, give this the much more accurate score of two, which if, oh. you, if you remember the Netflix... <laughs> you kicked rating, my ass with that point five. Goddamn straight, poser. That is a solid, I do not like this film. I don't hate it, I just do not like it. Anyways, that's a shame. Nice box set, though. It is a great box set. I mean, it's worth having for the first, well, even first three, I guess. I just won't give a damn about this one. Case in point, I can't remember the last time I saw this movie. I well, think when we watched it for this. Well, yeah, before that. Uh, we went through the Alien franchise. But did we see this? five years ago. No, about four years ago. But did we watch this one? Yeah, because oh. that was the first time I'd ever seen it. Oh. I never watched it uh, when it originally ran. It was when you made me watch the director's cut of Aliens. You don't like good things. We're now jumping to a two-pack, but again, it follows in suit. 
because these are the Alien vs. Predator films. We start with so the first still one. still in the Alien universe. Yeah, kinda. We start with the first one in 2004. And this is another case where I honestly believe the comic did it better. The original Alien vs. Predator comic, once again, by Dark Horse, that was some really good shit. Here, it's just kind of shit. You get a pyramid built under the ice in, was it the Arctic or Antarctic? I Antarctic. With the Antarctic. And suddenly a laser beam fires up and people are like, what the hell is that? So they want to go and see what it is. It turns out this pyramid is where the predators, long, long time ago, would bring aliens to hunt. And they had human, like, worshippers down there who would willingly sacrifice themselves to get impregnated by the aliens so the predators can hunt them. But of course, one time, way back in the past, the aliens got out, and so the predators nuked everything. But somehow they missed this temple, I don't know, and it got covered up with ice, and now the predators are coming back to reinitiate the hunt. These humans are kind of caught in the middle. They're supplying the body count for the aliens to come back because they got a queen down there. And that's cool. I like that. They have this queen all chained up and like in deep freeze. And then once the pyramid starts activating again because people are in it, they pull her out of the ice far out and she just begins, you know, laying eggs again. The predators are pretty cool. There's three of them and each one's kind of unique. You can't do too much uniqueness with the aliens because they're basically bugs, but they give us one like alien hero. Uh, I forget what they called him in the movie, like Gridhead or something like that. Because he gets caught up in a predator net and like he gets a grid pattern on his head before he breaks out of the net. So all during the rest of the movie he's running around with these squares cut into his flesh. I don't much care for the humans in this, they're kind of disposable and just there. You do get Lance Henriksen in this, and that's kind of cool. He is playing Mr. Wayland of the Wayland yutani Corporation. And it's also why there was the android bishop in Aliens who happened to look just like him. Something like that. He's pretty cool. I really don't care for anyone else. I don't actively despise them, but even our lead is just kind of meh. Anyways, the lead actress in this, what's her name? Sinai Latham. I, I don't think she does anything here. I don't hate her. I just don't give a damn about her. She's just, she's like wet cardboard. She's just kind of there, taking up space. I liked her better when she was in Blade, as the love interest for Blade. But, uh, here she's like the lead survivalist, mountain climber, exploration expert, and just, meh. And that goes for all the characters in there. They get a bunch of scientists and then bodyguards to protect the scientists. And they're disposable bodies, like, right out of a slasher film. I mean, they, they really are. The, the only thing, the only one that I think even stands out a little bit is her. And that's only because she... Well, she gets the most gets screen a, time. ...a relationship with the Predator, with one of the Predators. Yes. And... That I really like. I honestly like this movie. That's I, that relationship is right out of the from the comic book. This movie I don't have any issues with. I think it, you're right about the characters, but at the same time, I really don't care because we've got a. It's there's a lot of 
fun action between the aliens and the predators here. There are a lot of cool fight scenes. Uh, I like the fact that the predators respect a fellow badass. You know, yeah. like she she proves her own. You know, she has bravery, and so they respect that. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. Well, they've always had this code of honor. I mean, that's right from like Danny Glover in Predator Two when he kills the one predator, and all the rest show up, and they're like, "Okay, you're cool." And they just take their dead body and give him a trophy well, and go on I their like, way. In, in the first one, they won't kill people who aren't armed. Yeah. It's because it's not As honorable. Arnold Schwarzenegger said, there's no sport in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe I judge this movie harshly because the comic book was so damn good. And it seems like such an easy idea. You got aliens, which are awesome. You got predators, which are awesome. You put them together. This movie should be awesome. But it's not. Yeah. You get this whole pyramid that's like a Rubik's Cube type thing for unnecessary bullshit reasons where it's always shifting. And it's like every hour it morphs into different shapes. I don't know why. I think the predators kind of go out like chumps. In the whole food line, the hierarchy of badassness, predators should be up at the top. Because they are almost as physically imposing as the aliens. Now, the aliens are more physically gifted, but they're still no slouches. They fly through trees, and they can, they can beat up Arnold Schwarzenegger, hands down. Yet, they are technologically advanced, more so than humans. I mean, they can turn invisible, and they got laser guns, they got all these cool gadgets. Plus, they're strong and tough as hell. They should be able to go through and mop the floor of aliens. Yet here, two of them go down like just absolute chumps. And I guess they want to do that to show that the aliens are scary too, but you can show that without making the predators morons. I don't think, I mean, they just get the, the they get the jump on them, but I don't think they're, they're morons. You got, I think they're just unlucky. You got this race that is all about hunting. That's all they do. And they kind of just walk in there, you know, holding their dicks going, what's this? And I mean, again, they're slasher victims. Yeah, but also, I mean, think about it this way. These are a group of predators who have never done this before. Because the alien thing has been shut down for so long, they probably have no experience. Maybe, maybe that's it. Anyways. Anyway, it's a, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a throwaway movie. It really is. Like, it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. But I just think it's kind of like empty calories. But it is. It's, it's fun. I just, I wish it was more. I wish it was better. You gave it a four out of five. And I liked it just a little bit less. I give it a 3.5 out See, of 5. See, a lot of people shit all over that movie, and I don't get it. I like now, it. I don't think it should be, you know, shit on. I don't think it's that bad. I just, I really wish it was better. Lastly, there's Aliens vs. Predator Requiem from 2007. Now, I like that this sequel takes up right when the last movie ended. At the very end of the movie... You get the girl and the predator, they become buddies, and they take down the alien queen together, but then the predator dies from his wounds. Now, at the end of the AVP movie, they do give you a scene of the predator, he's laid out on a, like an altar or something, and he's dead. But then you see a chestburster pop out, and it's like half alien, half predator. 
they actually call it a predalien because why not so he's like you know a little chest burster but he has the predator's mandible things going on i think that's a neat design and later on when he gets full grown he not only has the mandibles but i think he has dreadlocks too i don't know anyway so yeah you get this hybrid between an alien and predator and that thing should be awesome because again predators are badass aliens are badass you put them both together you get a real badass well when this little baby alien pops out i guess he kills everybody all the predators on the spaceship because the spaceship crashes it crashes somewhere in like colorado and right off the bat you know you get some face huggers running around and they jump a father and son who are hunting in the woods so once again you get a kid getting offed within the first 10 minutes yeah i didn't see that coming no, so me the, neither. This instantly was first time watch for me. Okay, I think it was a second or third for me. The idea behind this movie, what got everybody going ooh, is, and one of the things about the first Alien vs. Predator, AVP, that I didn't like was the fact that it was PG-13. Because they really wanted that demographic. You know, money, money, money. Every Alien movie up until that point was rated R. Every Predator movie up until that point was rated R. You put the two together and you make a PG. The fuck are you thinking? Anyways, this movie went back to being R. So it was supposed to be all hardcore and bloody and, you know, gore and this is the badass AVP movie you were waiting for. And it kind of is, but it kind of isn't either. Some of the characters are weak. There's also too many human characters, I think. It's basically like a small town invasion. It kind of reminds me almost like a zombie film, but with aliens. But the biggest gripe against this yeah, they're movie... they're everywhere. Yeah. Once they start breeding, they just you get 30, 40 of them at a time. And then you get this... Flying over here, flying over there. This one predator comes down from a different ship, and he's like the problem solver predator. Like he a has, wolf. Yeah, he's got this blue goo that dissolves anything, and he's here to put a stop to what the hell's going on. Meanwhile, you got a whole bunch of aliens, and then, of course, at the top, you don't have an alien queen, but you get this predator alien thing, who's doing a weird thing that makes no goddamn sense at all. This predator alien likes to go up to pregnant women, stick a tube down their mouth from his mouth, and then inject alien eggs into them. And then... Somehow, I guess they the idea is they infect the fetus, because then their stomach blows up, and then a bunch of chest bursters. It makes no sense. No, it doesn't. But, you know, they wanted to do something new, I guess. Anyways, what I was saying is... something that made sense. Yeah. You know, tries doing something good. Shock. But, uh... What I was going to say is my number one gripe with this film is how dark it is. Now, that's something I've railed on about, I guess, in the past. Some people have called me out on it, but it's true. There's no point in having a film where you can't see what the fuck's going on. Film is a visual medium. And this movie, they wanted to, I guess, make it so atmospheric and dark and... And maybe, who knows, maybe to hide some of the lackluster special effects. I don't know. But the lighting in this film is piss poor constantly. You, again and again and again, can't see what the fuck is going on. You see some shapes and you hear some... Grrr, 
and you know maybe some blood hits a wall and that's it and over and over again it relies on this you know you can't see what's going on shit and it bugs the fuck out of me because if you would have shown what was going on if we actually saw this predator kicking ass and you know the aliens killing people and you know really let us see what's going on this movie might have been good or at least better I don't know if it could ever be good because there's other flaws to it but I would have liked it a whole hell of a lot more oh I had a good time with it I mean it was my like I said my first time watch I didn't really know what to expect I had no idea what it was about but that pregnant thing makes zero sense but no. I still had a good time with it well yeah I was gonna say all that said, I still really enjoy this film. It's a popcorn watch. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there's nothing to be taken away from it. There's no critical analysis. You just pop it in, and you get to watch aliens and predators and humans, oh my, you know, and killing and shooting and running and screaming and all that good shit. It's cotton candy for the brain, I guess. Um, I just wish it was better made at a technical level. You gave this a 3.5 out of 5. Yeah. I actually liked it slightly more this time. I gave it a 4 out of 5. So even all my bitching about it, it's still a solid film. It's It's fun, enjoyable. You know? And which is funny because I just, you know, all I heard for years and years and years was what how much shit it was, you know? And I, I just don't think it is. You know, it, it was fun. The last movie we're going to be talking about... In Fester wanted to say that he thinks this movie shit. Mm. I agree. With uh, th in this episode is from 2005. It stars Bruce Campbell, Woo and it holds the honor of being my very first movie box quote. Nice. And my quote. On the original release is on the front of the box, but on this release, it's on the back of the box. But it's the only one, and it's right under the title. Because this movie sucks, baby. <laughs> You're not going to get any good quotes for it. I think it's fun. Anyway, this this movie is Alien Apocalypse. It was a... I want to say it was a sci-fi Were you original. doing the bloody disgusting thing and just whoring no. yourself out for a box quote? No! This I thought it putrid. was a fun movie. Okay. This is when I... This was early on in my review career. Rather early. I think I'd been doing it for maybe a year by the time this came out. And I don't know. I just had a good time with it. I, I don't know. I was really... I've always been a big Bruce Campbell fan, so... Well, of course. He's awesome. You know, anything he does. It's... Okay. But he can only do so much. When we watched it recently for this, it's not great. No, it's a what I, I just want to point out spoiler you give this a higher score than aliens you are on so much crack well I enjoy it more than aliens I don't get that because this movie is garbage it is not it listen is. to my quote you want to hear it it says sure a rollicking I said rollicking yeah because that fits this movie a rollicking Bug kicking, good time. Okay, that's a lie right like, there. Like butt kicking, but yeah. with bug, get it? Okay. But it's uh, not a good time. This is Starship Troopers meets Army of Darkness. Except sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, Starship Troopers because they're a bunch of alien bugs. Okay. And uh, Army of Darkness because... Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. And, I mean, it's gory. It's, yeah. you know... Why don't you tell us what it's about? Uh, well, uh, Bruce Campbell and some other people are astronauts. And they land on this planet... And it's kind of like a Planet of the Apes kind of thing. Yeah, because isn't it Earth, um, but in the future or something? And they, yeah, like they've been gone. And then when they come back, it turns out that the whole planet has been taken over by this, um, th- by, by this group of bugs. By space termites. Yeah, They okay. eat wood. That's their big thing. They want to deforest. Yeah, I mean, they're basically the going from planet to planet and... Cleaning out, cleaning out the wood, and they enslave the humans to do this work. So when they come back to Earth from space, they come back to a planet that has ev- everyone's been enslaved. I mean, picture Planet of the Apes, like the original Planet of the Apes. It's kind of like that, except and not good. They get pulled it. There are all these rules you have to follow. There's all it's it's like it's hard and. Yeah, everybody's walking around gagged because I guess the termites don't like the sound of human voices or some stupid shit. Yeah, and anything you do, like you're going to get your finger chopped off. Yeah, if you, you do anything, they chop off a finger and then they eat it because not only do they eat wood, they eat flesh because science. And somewhere there is, you know, a um, there is a legend that the president has been living in a cave somewhere. So, a group of them decide that they are going to rebel, and they escape captivity, and then they go on a search for the president. It has the same kind of problem, like, uh, what's that John Travolta movie about aliens? Battlefield Earth. Earth? No. Whereas, Whereas, these aliens come down and they devastated us. They killed everybody, and oh, we had no chance. And then yet, a bunch of savages with, like, sticks and rocks somehow beat them up and win. That's just well, dumb. Well, it's perseverance. I guess. It's called stupid bullshit. Um, really, the 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 score I give it is mainly for Bruce Campbell. He plays a douche in this movie. Like, he, he's he's a smartass. He's um, constantly just, I mean, you know, being Bruce Campbell. He's Bruce Campbelling it up. But I also got the idea when I was watching this that he did not give a fuck about this movie. He is so phoning it in. Uh, I can kind of see that. Yeah. I mean, this is a straight paycheck for him. Yeah. Also, this was a sci-fi channel movie, so that reeks of bullshit right there. I'll admit, I don't think it aged well. <laughs> I had more fun with it when I initially saw it than I did this time. It may not be as rollicking as I let on or is good. <laughs> but You I should still, take out Rollicking and Good and just say it's a time. I still <laughs> I don't know. I still have fun with it. I didn't. Bruce Campbell is the only bright spot here. And again, you could tell he is just here for the paycheck. He does not give a fuck about this movie, so you don't even get good Bruce Campbell. You you get kind of so so Bruce Campbell. The special effects are horrendous. I'm talking like PlayStation 2, hell, PlayStation 1 era graphics for the the bugs and all that stuff. The plot is nonsensical. 
they go marching in the woods to find the president. And of course they do, because, you know, America is a very little space, and you can always bump into everybody. And then the president goes, I ain't gonna help, so then they go marching back and then decide to kick ass by themselves. So that was totally pointless. It just, it's... I don't know how this movie got made, other than having Bruce Campbell in it. Well, this was when Bruce Campbell was making his comeback. This was a comeback? Well, not this movie, but I mean, this was during that time period when he was coming back into... See, I I mean, he had finished Briscoe County Jr. I saw this as a Bruce Campbell needs money type movie. Well, yeah. He had house payments. He was trying to get... He was trying to get... Because it was after this that the ball got rolling on, you know, bringing back, like, Ash and all this stuff. He had finished up with Briscoe County Jr. and he needed something else. So, that's... I just wish it wasn't this. what I'm getting from it. It's a stupid, silly sci-fi flick. Now, those type of movies do have their fans. I am not one of them. You, I think, like them more than I do. You definitely like this film more than I did. Not by a whole lot, because you only gave it a 3 out of 5. Yeah. Once again, I gave it a 2.5 out of 5. And that .5 is all Bruce Campbell. But like I said, this isn't even good Bruce Campbell. This is just Bruce... Needs money, Campbell. Anyway, the um the last movie in this episode is going to be The Alien Dead from 1980 and directed by Fred Olin Ray. Um, you will know that name from a lot of low-budget uh, productions. He has 158 directing credits. The son of a bitch works. I give him that. <laughs> um, the disc I have is the... 25th anniversary edition so Ooh. I put that in 2005 it's fancy yeah and it was honestly I had not seen it at that point it was a blind buy from Best Buy I used to go walking around every Tuesday I would go walking around Best Buy and you know little retail therapy mm-hmm. it, uh, it was like a church sadly me, you know? god I don't know about you guys but our Best Buy around here is getting really sad when it comes oh, to movies. it's got like Two rows of or two aisles of movies, and if that, it's really pathetic. He actually directed an, one episode of Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater. No, nice. Uh, the original, yeah, cool. He did uh, Evil Tunes, Scream Queen, Hot Tub Party. I actually like both of those movies. Kinda. I mean, they're not great, but they're fun. Alienator. You like that movie? Kind of. I mean, like is a hard word, maybe. (laughs) Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers is probably his most famous. But uh, this movie is his third movie. And it shows. And, yeah. Uh, The basic idea here is that a meteor strikes a houseboat in the swamps near a southern town, populated by Yankees with fake accents. The people on the houseboat become zombies who feed on the alligators in the swamp. So yeah, despite the title, it's a zombie movie. But I guess because it's a space-born reason for the zombies to come up, that's why they're called the alien dead. Yeah. And then eventually they run out of alligators and they start going for the people. And then you have this local scientist guy who's trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, It's extremely low budget. 
not that great. But no. if you are a fan of like really low budget zombie movies, then you'll probably enjoy it. Like something like Redneck Zombies, which mm. I have a soft spot for. I can see that. I think that's a better movie than this, though. Yeah, it is. But uh, it is kind of boring at times. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe you're a completist. Maybe you feel the need. It's not a movie that, uh, honestly, when we watched it for this, that's the first time I've seen it since I bought it <laughs> in 2005. It's just been sitting on the shelf. So That was a first-time watch for me. It is not a movie that I go back to often. and It's not uh, a movie you need to see. I, no, you don't gotta. You don't gotta. But if, I don't know, maybe somebody out there is a really big Fred Olin Ray fan. And yeah. They, have just never seen this one. Uh, it's, you know, out there. I mean, somebody thought enough of it to give it a 25th anniversary edition. I think it was Anchor Bay. Uh, no, no not even close. it was not. <laughs> Who is that? Somebody you've never heard of. Mm. Okay, well, never mind. Fred Olin Ray probably did it. Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, there's that. And then that will end uh, this episode. Well, what'd you give it? Class- oh, sorry. Um... Yeah, I give this, uh, it's like a two. Yeah, that's what I gave it to. Mainly just because I don't want to totally shit on it because they, it is very low budget and they tried to make a movie for what they had. It's just not good. So I just give it a solid, I do not like this film. Yeah, I might be generous and go 2.5 just because of the effort that was put in, but, uh, yeah, not great. So, uh, that's it for this episode. We covered quite a few movies. Yes. We ended up with all our alien stuff, so when we get back, we're going to have something else. Yeah. And uh, we're still in the A's. Yes, we'll be in the A's for a while. We'll be there for a little while, so just uh, buckle up. And in the meantime, thanks again for joining us as we go through this. I hope that now we've hit the actual alphabet, that I hope it's more fun. You know, I kind of feel like it is. It's a little... uh, You never know what's going to pop up. With the exception of... of these wacky movies you for some reason still have pretty much everything we're going to talk about i'm going to like because if we don't if i don't like it it's not in the collection mm. with the exception of, i mean you do have some movies that are your movies like chick flicks and all that uh, i'm not a big fan of those but yeah well considering you accidentally skipped two when we were going through the two packs that was a complete accident bullshit I didn't mean to. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> you even said a while ago, oh, I don't think we watched that yet. I think that would, that was a legitimate accident. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh. join us next time when uh, we'll still be going through the A's, and we will see you on episode 21. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for visiting the House of Salmons. We hope to see you back very soon. Until then, come chat with Brian and me on our Facebook group page at Horror in the House of Salmons. And if you like what we do here and want to hear some bonus episodes, consider being a patron at patreon.com slash House of Salmons. Special thanks to Rick Morgan for composing our theme music.